This is the Zen's podcast on science, technology, and entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Zen Rong Yap, and our guest today is Sahas Rajit Ramesh. He is a freelance consultant in business strategy and finance in the power sector, previously working at Aurora Energy Research. He topped his year in material science at the University of Oxford and, and did his fourth year at MIT on computation materials. He writes a blog on personal growth and spirituality. He's looking to launch a coaching business and online products related to spirituality and psychotherapy. He is a deep thinker that is not afraid to share his emotional experiences to help others. And I'm very happy he's here today. Welcome to the podcast, Jit. Oh, thanks very much, Dan. Thanks for having me. My pleasure yeah. to be here. So how, how have you enjoyed living and working in London? Yeah, so I've lived in London almost, uh, I guess, kind of a year now. And uh, I have to say, like, overall, I really enjoy it. Um, I think one of my favorite things about it is just, you know, there's so many people that you can meet when you, you know, you go out even just for a walk or something, constantly new people around. And I've found there's a lot of people who I see eye to eye with uh, here as well, especially amongst like young community. And, you know, also just, just from a kind of diversity standpoint, like I've never lived anywhere where there's just so many people from all over the world. And it's so beautiful. Um, and it really makes me feel in a weird way at home. Because, you know, there's a saying here um, in London that, you know, everyone is a foreigner, so no one is a foreigner. Yeah. So, yeah, obviously, as, as I was, I'm, an, I'm Indian. I, I was born in India, but I grew up in Italy for, for most of my life. So I always kind of felt that kind of um, foreignness in, in the place that I was living. And, uh, yeah, but in London, it's, you kind of just, just blend into the chaos, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it really feels like there's a place for everyone. And it's just so international. Right. Yeah, so yeah, there's um, a place for everyone if, if you have money in London. <laughs> the sad thing about it is that you know obviously there's also a lot of people struggling, but that's that's any city really. Yeah, that's true. Jit, after you graduated from Oxford and did your fourth year MIT, you joined Aurora as an energy researcher analyst, right? So maybe mm-hmm. you can tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so Aurora Energy Research is uh, a company. Is well, it's based in Oxford, but now they have offices uh, in Germany, Spain, US, Australia. So it's kind of like a spin out actually of, of the university from like the economics department. And what they're trying to do really is, is they're trying to do computational modeling of energy markets. So the energy market is specifically the power market, right? This is where you buy and sell electricity. So like, you know, you might have a market for peanuts where you sell like kilograms of peanuts in the marketplace. Um, you sell megawatt hours of electricity, like units of energy. And this market is active like 24-7 all the time in every country. There's generators who sell power on the wholesale market to suppliers. So the suppliers buy the power from the generators and the suppliers then sell it on to the consumers who are you and me sitting at home boiling our tea or you know industrial users or, or commercial users. So that's the kind of general structure of the market. There's the generators, uh, the suppliers, and the consumers who are, mm-hmm. who are making the demand. And the way that the market works, it varies a lot from country to country, but generally there is a, a liberalized kind of free energy market kind of model, which is in most European countries, including the UK, um, where basically the um, every half an hour, the market gets settled. So what this means is that, you know, every half an hour, people bid into the wholesale market saying like, oh, I'm going to sell this much power. Uh, and they bid in their price. This is how much I want for my power. So 
all these things get stacked up every half an hour. And then there's a, like an amount of demand that needs to be met in that half hour across the whole country. Um, and it's basically like the supply and demand curve um, where um, it's where basically the, the demand intersects with the supply stack that defines the price because different types of generators will bid in at different prices depending on how expensive it is for them to produce electricity. So the cheapest ones are like nuclear and renewables. They have very little cost to producing an extra megawatt hour of electricity is called a short run marginal cost. Um, and basically uh, up, up towards the bigger end, you have like gas peaking plants, which are, you know, not, not, not like kind of full on gas plants that are producing power all the time, but they're off most of the time. And they only come online when there's enough demand that like it demand, like that they need to be used. Um, and so the, the price of power is actually determined by the most expensive bidder who gets accepted and everybody gets paid that price. So even if you bid in really low, you still get paid wow. that kind of higher clearing price. It's, this is called a pay as clear auction. Um, and this happens every half an hour of every day of every year, all the time, um, because supply and demand on the grid needs to be balanced pretty much exactly all mm -hmm. the time. Otherwise, you're going to have like serious problems and power outages. So there's this whole kind of juggling game that's going on behind the scenes, which is quite fascinating. Um, and what Aurora tries to do really is they try to forecast um, like 20, 30 years into the future, how the supply mix is going to change, how demand is going to change. And then they model how that's going to actually affect like the prices in real time. Um, so that's what they're trying to do really. And trying to get like, what is the price of power going to be over the next 30 years? They also forecast a bunch of other things. Uh, policy related things also there's other markets around power and electricity that are it's not just wholesale but yeah market forecasting basically and you know just to take a kind of step back from the detail on a higher level what they use this for is you know they they do research and publications that they sell to um, clients or they do direct consulting work with clients and the clients are either you know um, uh, investors or developers that are looking to kind of like um, you know, buy or, or build a, a kind of plant or, um, you know, government organizations as well that are looking for information and insight into designing, like how to design like the policy framework to shape like the energy transition. Because I'm not sure if, if you're aware or if your listeners are aware, but like um, a lot of countries in Europe have made commitments to reaching net zero emissions uh, over the next like 30 to 50 years, uh, depending on the country. Uh, including the UK, which I believe is like 2050 is the net zero target. So that's going to require a big policy push um, because unlike, you know, something like, you know, the iPhone market or the technology market, you know, even the liberalized energy market is a highly regulated. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of kind of tariffs and a lot of kind of um, subsidies here and there. And these kind of provide the economic incentives that put the pressure on the actual mix of technologies and what's going to be favorable and what's not going to be favorable. So the government has a huge hand to play in shaping the, the, the transition. How do you think the energy market is uh, like changing or going to change in the next couple of years? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think we can, you can say with quite a lot of confidence, like this is quite a common narrative in the, in the forecasting space um, in um multiple European countries and really pretty much every country that I've worked on, renewables are going up. So the, the share of renewables in the generation mix is gonna go up. Um, nuclear, 
actually that's a bit of a more tricky one because up until recently there was like this really big anti-nuclear kind of wave like even france was decommissioning a bunch of his nuclear reactors and everything which i thought was a shame because um they were like the nuclear kind of powerhouse of europe um but now recently especially since uh, cop 26 i think there have been conversations that are reframing like how clean nuclear is and it's just like literally was not labeled as a green technology or a clean technology and obviously you know there's issues with waste and all these kind of things that need to be overcome but it's it's still i think a lot better than than you know uh, fossil fuel technologies um and especially the kind of power that it can provide uh is is very key to the mix because like i said right supply and demand need to be matched and you can't control demand uh so much there are some things you can do but um you know people are going to use power when they want to use power and it follows like a pretty predictable curve these days the curve might change shape when you know with electric vehicles and all this stuff coming on but effectively you always have to play this juggling game the problem with renewables is you have like zero control over when they produce power. Like if the wind is blowing, you got you got power from your wind uh, farm. If the sun is shining, you got power. Um, but when it's not, you don't have it. And so this creates two problems. One is oversupply. So sometimes you might have too much power being generated. Then you actually know what to do with. Um, or undersupply, where it's like the renewables are not actually generating power in like the evenings or something when there's most demand. And then you have to like turn on all these gas peaking plants to meet your demand of the evening. So you've just like spent all these millions of pounds to build all these renewable farms, but you're still burning gas every day at 7 p.m. So it's not so simple to kind of orchestrate and transform the energy system into a clean one. But generally the change that I think we're gonna see um, is a transition towards uh, decarbonized technologies. So this doesn't just mean renewables. It cannot mean just renewables. Um, renewables have to be paired with batteries, like large scale battery storage, because like, for example, that solar that produces like so much in the middle of the day where nobody is using power, all that power can be stored and used later. Right. Um, then there's, um, you know, I think nuclear has a really important role to play because nuclear just provides flat power throughout the whole day. So it just kind of reduces that, that need. Um, but then, you know, they're also inevitably going to be some gas burning technologies it seems even even in 15 20 years time but there's also this idea of carbon capture and storage to like reduce the emissions from those so those are the kind of key three three key decarbonizing technologies for the power sector so just like you mentioned cop 26 right uh, yeah and there are quite a lot of articles talking about how um like it's it, like some people say it's a bit of a failure some people said that it was still successful in many areas. What, what do you think about that? Uh, I don't really have a strong opinion on this, uh, to be honest. Um, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. I think that, you know, it's a very tricky question because on the one hand, this is, this is like a really massive problem um, to solve, like climate change and creating clean energy system. And, you know, we look to like the leaders uh, of, of countries to like make these decisions, but you know, these are extremely complex systems and extremely complex decisions. So for me, I'm always more interested in like longer term trends as opposed to specific events. Um, I don't know also the, all the details of what went down at COP26, but what I, what I have seen from my own experience, uh, which does give me hope is two things. Governments in general and all their policy documents, their announcements and their thinking in the past like five years have shifted significantly more in favor of like 
low carbon technologies and they seem to really understand more the like why this is important and then a, a more interesting point is really you have to see the energy transition is not going to be something that's led by the politicians or by the from the top down you know there are decisions that need to be made top down like big investment decisions policy decisions but if you look at the mechanics of how people make those decisions they look around and see what everyone else is saying what everyone else is thinking they they're human beings that like you know feed arguments and data into their heads and try to make decisions right um you know hopefully they might also just be going by gut which is in some countries that is the case but <laughs> um yeah. like so really it's a whole ecosystem of the energy industry and all the intellectual kind of conversations are going on there the different forecasting reports the conversations the the themes the ideas it's actually an extremely human transition uh, which I was very surprised to see because I thought, okay, I'm going to energy modeling. We're going to model the, the market. We're going to figure out exactly how we're going to get to net zero 2050. Let's do it. Figure it out. Climate change solved. It's very much not like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, you know, any analysis that you do only plays like a small part in the overall bigger conversation. And the real transformation is made by people who have the money and the decisions that they end up making. So it's all about kind of not even necessarily influencing the decisions, but creating better information so better decisions can be made. Um, and so in, in that sense, like I also see like, you know, a lot more young people interested in the energy sector going into this space. And, you know, that gives me hope because, you know, um, in like five, 10, 15 years, slowly, slowly, the, the population of like key decision makers is going to shift into people who are much more concerned with climate and sustainability over just profit. Mm. Um, so if we can get more of a kind of like I recently learned this term, um, like a, a for-purpose business. So you know, it's not oh, it's not necessarily nonprofit, yeah. but it's not for-profit. It's for purpose. Like, mm -hmm. uh, and I really like that um, because basically, um, yeah, it would be good to see more of that kind of awareness of what's important just beyond the bottom line. Because right now, I think a lot of the energy companies that have um, a lot of influence they are really at the end of the day completely like very much focused on on the bottom line which is also understandable i got like got people to pay they got shareholders to to appease like so it, it, I'm, I'm not like trying to judge yeah. them or anything like that it's just um i think that this kind of shift towards more conscious business not just in the energy sector but all mm -hmm. over needs to needs to happen yeah, like uh when you said for purpose business uh it makes a lot it's, it resonates with me a lot like i've seen I'm seeing some companies like Olio, a recent food waste oh, yeah, yeah. unicorn, right? Uh, they on their website it says they are not a charity and they're for profit because that's the, that's the way they believe they can scale the, the fastest way mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. affect the most affect the uh, most number of people and uh, have a have a good shot at fix, at yeah. solving the problem of food waste, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like, um, and what you said about in the last five years uh, and with a hu very human transition, um, I, I completely agree as well. It's, um, it's been, I, I expected there to be a lot more shoving it down the throats of politicians, you know, but they've actually uh, kind of risen to the challenge themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Quite a few mm -hmm. of them, at least. Yeah, yeah. It seems so, at least. With politicians, you can never really know. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah. I want to ask you, um, so do you think the future is in, of energy, like 
is in hardware or software or is it both of them together like maybe yeah uh, with, with your material science background that sort of gives yeah. you a different perspective as well yeah i think the future of energy you know that like this is a very good question it's an interesting question um i guess all i will say is the short answer is both um and i can go into a bit of detail as to why hardware will always and forever be indispensable from the energy sector and that's really because these are physical systems that deliver like a physical product at the end of the day right which is power or be it heat or you know any other kind of form of energy that we might end up using but um yeah or you know fuel for transport or whatever it is like at the end of the day it all boils down to hardware and so software though has been playing an increasing role um in that you know as i mentioned this is a very complex system right there's a lot of moving parts a lot of independent agents that are like decentralized and operating making their own decisions and it all has to be tied together into the centralized system so there's a lot of admin data crunching a lot of kind of stuff there so there's definitely a lot of scope for for companies to come in and make these kinds of processes more efficient and that's already been happening like um you know there's also a lot of discussions of how cryptocurrency and blockchain could play a role in like decentralized finance for energy systems and all this kind of stuff which is a super interesting topic um so there's definitely this kind of whole digital software type wave coming into the energy space um but you know specifically if we're talking about something like a, a SaaS business model right um and then you know this is this might be a really general kind of comment it's not applicable to a lot of situations but I, I just generally think that you you can't really expect the same kind of scalability that you would in like a completely software based company in the energy space and this is kind of coming from my experience working with clients um like my 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 impression is that generally like you know that kind of bleeding period um before you start to break even and like make profits is longer um and it's it's more you incur heavier costs as well um not not necessarily heavier but like you still incur those costs and like it it takes things just generally move more slowly because you need the hardware to catch up to the capabilities of the software if, if you see what i mean uh, for for like smart technologies or like smart homes or smart like shops and all this kind of stuff to be managed like for example in that space right where there is a lot of buzz and a lot of discussion on using software and stuff to control and optimize the use of things automatically um there is definitely there's never going to be a software that becomes like ubiquitous without finding a way to cooperate with the not just the existing hardware base but the constantly transforming hardware base so it's it's quite a it's is definitely challenging it's very <laughs> um it's not it's a moving target if you see what i mean yeah yeah cuz with hardware uh what you're taking on is more like technical risk uh rather than market risk cuz and and your revenue looks a lot more like a step function than an, mm. like an exponential uh curve that you usually mm -hmm. get with b2b software startups right and right uh, right products um but I want to I want to ask you like cuz just now you mentioned a little bit about uh crypto web3 and defi Right. Um. I was just wondering, what are people saying? Um. In in the energy space and uh, is it are they mentioning Solana at all? Because which I think that's the uh supposedly environmentally friendly, uh, but and like, uh, low, um, low gas fees. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think before I have to qualify this answer and saying like my interest in crypto has been um, always a bit tangential. Like mm -hmm. I'm not keeping up with uh, with the current affairs and, and that. I feel like it's one of those things that you know I should be doing or I should be <laughs> reading reading more about and all these things. And you know I I don't know. I'm not well placed enough to say or give a summary even of the kind of conversations around crypto that are really dominating right now. I just have seen it mentioned in a few places. Um, for me, just for my own personal thoughts, like, um, and, you know, just obviously it's always um, inspired or influenced by, by things that I've read or watched, but um, I think that there is a potential for using blockchain and cryptocurrency to decentralize investment into infrastructure projects. So whether this is energy projects, whether it's like building hospitals, whether it's like building roads, if you look at these industries, um, you know, including energy, like a lot of the times, like big, big upfront costs and the returns are not like crazy. Like it's not something scalable. It's like you have one asset, you've put in the money for the asset. How much money is the asset going to make? So the asset could be a solar farm, wind farm, gas plant, whatever it is. And that depends on so many things within the system. It's very hard to forecast, very uncertain. Um, there is this kind of sense sometimes people have that the government is going to guarantee my returns because ultimately this is good for the world and they wanted like more renewables and all this kind of stuff if you, if you are going into green tech. Um, but there's still this kind of centralized um, kind of investment model. And, and I'm, just, I'm just generally curious about, you know, what if, imagine a world where, you know, instead of paying taxes or as much tax, people had to give a certain percent of their earnings, but they instead invested them into projects like these infrastructure projects, for example, right? And they might not want, they might not want or expect as many returns as like an institutional investor, like at a bank, who's doing this really for like the bottom line of the bank, they're doing it because of a legal obligation to pay tax or something. And they might also still get some return, might contribute to their pension or something like that. Like, because these, these projects are like generally, um, generally uh, low risk, uh, but also like lowish return, right? Um, so it, it's like people are good. Like you build a road somewhere where it's neat, people are going to use the road. Like, you know, people are going to like whatever revenues that you might get from like a road tax or whatever, but um, it le I don't know anything about roads actually and, and the kind of economy of roads yeah. but so let's talk about energy <laughs> um, but like for example like the revenues of uh, of a solar farm um, you know let's say instead of having it being like 70% owned by like a developer 20% owned by a bank and 10% owned by I don't know some guy like it's just like micro owned by like a million people like you know or or a thousand people it's just a shift in like the the investment model that that to me is a very curious idea that's all it is in my mind right now at the moment it's an idea so i'll be curious to see how that pans out yeah that'd be that'd be really cool actually <laughs> um yeah so uh i think having asked about your um, background materials would be the transition mm. to uh, what material science at, at Oxford was like was like for you? Material science at Oxford for me, I really enjoyed the course, uh, personally. Um, although I remember, the, you know, there was definitely part of me that was doing it for, not because it was the thing that lit me up the most inside, but because it was something that kind of ticked a lot of boxes, right? Mm. Um I think I was more passionate and interested in things like philosophy or psychology or these kinds of things. Um, but, you know, 
Um, my parents kind of wanted me to study something technical and I really don't regret studying something technical at all. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I see it as a, as a huge advantage because I mean, you can never really like draw lines to like, know this is the case, but I just somehow feel like it's shaped my thinking in a way that is like very useful. Yeah. Um, what I really like about material science is how interdisciplinary it is and interdisciplinary, um, you know, it doesn't just mean that you learn things from different subjects, but it also means you, you need to use your brain in different ways. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at kind of, in my mind, if you look at biology, physics, and chemistry, right? Like you have these sides of spectrum. In biology, it's very much like qualitative knowledge, uh, generally speaking, um, you know, um, you need, uh, like you need to obviously have a good memory, but it's, it's, it's much more like kind of narrative stories, processes, mm -hmm. understanding things on a kind of qualitative or imagery or me mechanistic level. And then on the physics side, it can get much more mathematical, much more quantitative. Um, it can get uh, a lot more abstract. It can, you know, it has this different kind of flavor to it. You see it's a bit yeah. more clean cut and dry and, and clinical. And, you know, if you look at a lot of the problems that, that, that physicists will look at, like it's, it's, it's oftentimes toy problems, like, <laughs> like, you know, like a one dimensional harmonic spring or something like yeah. something where they can apply the maths. Right. And then chemistry kind of sits in the middle that uses both these kinds of thinking. I think material science is most similar to chemistry in that sense, where it's like, yes, we can bring in like complex maths. You can bring in things, but we only do it when it's necessary. And this is a, of, of the three, like, I like it because it's a very pragmatic and practical approach. It's like, what's the problem, right? What tools do we have to kind of tackle it? And then you, you use the ones that are most sophisticated. Like, you'll know this, like for a lot of things, even sometimes the coolest or most profound, like important things for the world that come from material science, the maths behind it, for example, is actually quite simple. It's like a linear mm -hmm. thing, maybe an exponential here or there, like, you know, but it's not like this long ass, like, uh, mega equation from from like physics or something you know um, and I think this comes th that kind of thing of like this more kind of 80-20 approach of like what works and always mm. asking like what works yeah. that's the thing I really like and I find valuable in material science yeah, yeah I think it's really cool that you can like put on lots of different hats and uh, use what toolkit is um, most effective Right, like yeah uh, I, I remember last time we you mentioned dislocations to me and uh, how mm. like it's it's such a simple thing that uh someone just realized one day oh wait that's what that's how it actually works it's not yeah. breaking the whole layer you're just moving like one line of atoms right yeah, <laughs> well, yeah just breaking yeah. one bond what's that bonds then Re one bond re remaking yeah, them yeah. right and yeah, yeah. there's almost no math to it it's all visualization and yeah. understanding like the physical principles behind it and yeah, yeah. yeah it's just <laughs> it's very cool it's very cool um yeah and it just kind of gave me this appreciation of like this more holistic appreciation of different ways of looking at the world um where you know because material science also like i guess a bit of a newer subject it's a less kind of standardized or regulated subject like i think if you study different places you have a very different experience and obviously there's the potential disadvantages to that, but like, I did not feel necessarily that I was being overtrained to do like one very specific thing. And I kind of felt that a lot of the things that I picked up were quite transferable because I think sometimes what I've observed in people who are like, you know, they really focus on one kind of thinking or something like uh, some, some physicists, for example, like, you know, if you're just really fall in love with like the actual tool and using the tool and what you enjoy is using the tool, 
then what you can actually do after that, you're kind of tied to that tool. You're not actually, you can always choose to leave that behind and go into the wild world of like the unknown and throw yourself into it. But it's like a harder jump to make because you're more attached to that. You, you think that you can only do that. And like, I've seen a lot of people, um, especially in like theoretical kind of pieces, like I feel sometimes they might be limiting in their minds what's possible for them because they're kind of scared to go into something that is, because once you start going into the real world, yeah, even something like business, like you suddenly realize like, oh, I actually don't know anything. I can't predict anything. Yeah. Anything could happen day to day. And it's a very different, profoundly different shift in, I think, like the way you sit within yourself consciously and how you operate your faculties compared to like, oh, let's solve like these problems. And like, let's kind of, you know, that's very structured, very bounded. There are answers. And this kind of shift, you can also experience it from like, I guess it's a shift from like closed problems to open problems mm -hmm. um, where like the open problems, like half the struggle is even finding out what questions you want to ask um, that you see that when people go into research as well, there is that bit of a transition, but when you go into like the, the, the wider world where then you're cooperating with way more people. And like, there are so many, so many factors and things you have to learn to operate much more from a place of intuition than from a, like a place of like mental cognition. Yeah. That's I been my experience anyway. <laughs> I don't know uh, how much you know about a guy called Feynman. Um, mm -hmm. You know him? Yeah, because... Yeah, Richard Feynman. Yeah, I, I read his uh, biography and it seems like uh, he was especially good at not pigeonholing himself into one toolkit, right? Mm. Like, he, he would try all sorts of different things and I think that's what allowed him to be uh, so successful and theoretical and also applied physics right like mm -hmm. um so yeah i I do, I do think that what you said is like absolutely correct and uh due to the way uh some of the courses are structured here at university as well um it doesn't always take into account the outside world but uh i want, mm. I want to hear what your and your experience how does mit approach material science differently to how Oxford approaches it, and maybe just some of the like, cultural differences as well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. So <clears throat> let's start with the academic differences. Um, now, I, I want to caveat what I'm about to say also, but I've not experienced like the undergraduate life at both mm -hmm. places, nor have I experienced the kind of research life at both places. Um, because I did the kind of undergraduate part of my course in Oxford, and then I did the research bit at MIT. Um, so it's more like looking at the experiences of other people, what I infer from that and speaking to them and things. One huge difference from the outset is that when you join MIT, even if you applied for like a specific major, uh, in your application, you're actually just totally free to change your mind. Like in, for most, like, like different specialized, like you want to end up at the end of the four years with a kind of specialization. Um, and you know, they have certain requirements of things that you need to do in each year, but you can do your first year or even first two years selecting courses strategically so that you could do one, this major or that major or both majors, you know, mm -hmm. um, like a double major. And so basically there's a lot more freedom to pick and choose what you study based on what you like. And there's even, I think some requirements that you do some things that are not scientific as well. So it's, it's, it's a much more kind of holistic kind of approach, which I really like that kind of that, that kind of style of things. Myself personally, I've always been someone who's enjoyed doing a variety of different things. 
Um, and I found that, you know, doing material science, like, thankfully, it was quite interdisciplinary, different forms of thinking. But after a while, towards the end, I was kind of like missing a bit, like, being able to just explore other things. Um, and, you know, the UK system, this is more broadly difference between UK system and US system. So it's not just Oxford and MIT. Uh, but the UK system, you know, you apply for a course, you're there to do that course, and you yeah. do that course. You don't go to lectures from other courses. You don't like shop around, like you know. Um, but then again, you don't pay like fifty thousand dollars a year, so there's <laughs> pros and cons. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so it's basically, um, yeah, that I would say is the key academic difference, and that's even in the approach within material science, you can like specialize from earlier on in what you kind of like and what you kind of don't like. Whereas in the Oxford system, you're very much forced to do everything, like the mechanical side of things, the optoelectronic side of things, like uh, you know, you you have to like do all of that until like your third year, and then only in your third year you start like choosing stuff, and then mm -hmm. in the fourth year, obviously, then it becomes specialized. But um, yeah. Then in terms of like the cultural differences, they're very different, very, very different places. Um, obviously there's like national cultural differences that makes into it, but generally um, I feel like there's a much more of a counterculture hippie vibe at MIT. Um, so like MIT is like kind of the population is, is, is divided into like two. Uh, there's like the kind of MIT kind of standard people and then there's the people that they call east campus people and um, because the different dorms that you stay in at mit as an undergraduate have very different vibes and some of the dorms like i think there's east campus random house is another one all these things these are these are very like counter like counterculture is a word but like you know these are obviously surface things this doesn't define people but like you know people you know dyed hair shaved heads like walk around barefoot all the time even in the middle of the snow like you always find them like you know playing music or like you know doing like um just like racks there's also this this culture there's something in, in mit called hacking yeah, um yeah. <laughs> yeah where it's, it's not it's not computer hacking at all it's literally breaking and entering into places on campus where you're not supposed to go and like you know just discovering cool shit there and i think i remember a story that somebody told me when I went there that like one of the, the biggest hacking successes of like, you know, the, the MIT students was, you know, so, so like in the US universities have like campus police. So they have like police kind of force or security force for each university campus. Um, and so they, they basically, these bunch of these mechanical engineers, they dismantled like overnight, they dismantled an MIT police car and reassembled it on the roof of like a building. <laughs> so yeah. the police that woke up in the morning, they're like, where, where is the car? <laughs> I saw the image online. I couldn't believe it. Right? Like, they get it. I think it's, is it the Killian dome? Uh, the Killian like, dome or something like that. No, Killian court. There's a dome, right? Oh that yeah, building. Killian court, there's a dome. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's very different in that sense. And, and, you know, Oxford is much more, I would say, in my experience, at least homogenous in terms of the culture. Like, yeah, there's variation between colleges, but like most people there are kind of English. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just the kind of, because it's a smaller town, the kinds of things that people get up to kind of converge to like similar things. Mm -hmm. 
where whereas at MIT obviously you're in Boston so there's like a lot of some people just like start living in Boston some people like you know, there's, there's a lot more stuff going on and also you have MIT there you have Harvard there there's a lot of intermixing there there's a bunch of different universities in Boston so there's a lot of students a lot of stuff going on so it's 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 generally a bit I think busier it feels more hectic um but also kind of more free in terms of what you can choose to do I think that's generally like the US versus the UK. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, but, uh, so talking to some of my tutors here, they say that um, at Oxford, uh, the way people do material science is mostly um, just based on characterization and looking at things, trying to understand things. But at MIT, it's, my guess is that it's more on building. Right, like it's because it's called material science and engineering there, right? Mm, mm. Um, did you did you uh, did you experience that at, at all? So I was actually not in the material science department, so I actually don't know that oh, much of the okay. material science department what they get up to. Uh, I know that there's a strong biomaterial side there, and they are focused in in that, especially on building stuff or nanomaterials, like trying to build new complexes and things, and on the experimental side at least. I don't know about their characterization and like how much they do. I think Oxford really specializes in that. Yeah, um, it's a history. Uh, that's what. They, yeah, like as a long, yeah, 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 it's a long history of doing that. Um, whereas with MIT, um, there's also it feels like there's more interaction and blending between the different departments because the students move around between them. They bring knowledge from one place to another. Yeah. I think the faculty are also more encouraged to collaborate and do interdisciplinary things as a whole because it's also a fully technical institution. They do have philosophy, they have humanities and stuff, but majority is like technical disciplines. Um, and a great example of at MIT is the MIT Media Lab, which mm. I don't know if there's anything else like it um, potentially in the world, but like it's a hugely interdisciplinary thing where like you have a one research group, people from like vastly different backgrounds collaborating together. And I think that's super cool. Um, yeah. Great. Uh, just um, one question on universities. How do you how did you place best in finals and prelims? I think people uh, like to know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I the short answer is like I don't really know. Um, <laughs> but the long answer is um, yeah, it, it's not something that I ever actually tried to do. Um, I was just trying to do my best. And that's always been kind of my approach to academics. Like my, my, it was never explicitly in my mind the goal to be like the best out of everyone who happened to be there, it, whether this was at school or whether this was afterwards. I think just generally what made the difference is that like I had just been raised with a very, very solid work and study ethic, um, which has its downsides, believe me, as well. But um, yeah, just like the way that I was raised to look and think about education was always like the top priority like when I went to university, I was there, like my parents were, were, were you know, it's not like, you know, you're, you're there to study. Like, obviously also enjoy yourself, have all these experiences, but you're there to study. Like, that's why you're there. And it was why I was there. So I think really in one word, consistency. Consistency is key. Like if I think, if I compare myself to a lot of my peers at the time, their kind of work life balance was much more unevenly distributed over time. So like, uh you know they would be doing more more stuff like last minute towards the deadline or you know even in terms of because because in oxford right like and especially in material science like when you do your third year finals you have to remember stuff from two years and it's like a shit ton of stuff that you gotta like remember and understand 
So knowing this and anticipating the challenge, like I took it very seriously from day one. Like I, I, I think that's what it is. Like I never thought like, oh yeah, you know what? It'll be fine. Like mm-hmm. I'm smart, I'll do it. I never ever think that. So um, it, it was kind of just consistently like, you know, doing the two sheets, putting in the effort. And then over the holidays as well, like Christmas holidays, spring holidays, summer holidays, devoting time also to studying and making sure I understood what was going on. Um, and yeah, that looking back, I don't know if I, if I would necessarily change it because I still enjoyed myself. I still did things that were fun. Maybe mm-hmm. a bit more fun would have been nice because yeah. like at the end of the day, um, like it was never really a goal of mine to, 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 to like, come top or anything so um but yeah consistency is key consistency is definitely key mm. um when you were talking about uh remembering stuff from back like two years ago uh, i suddenly yeah. had a um had an idea of a question you know how in uh, in interviews like the, one of the first things they ask you could is like what's your favorite material <laughs> Right. <laughs> I'd like to ask you that now after like, what's my favorite probably material? like years from when you had those interviews what is your favorite material uh, <laughs> what is my favorite material that's a good question man that's not something I ever thought about during the course or anything I really like like just from from a from a kind of studying point of view, I don't know. I think silicon is very fascinating. Like there's a lot of cool stuff going on with that. And I remember learning, you know, even just how a transistor works. And I loved how it tied together things from like microstructure. There was also some consideration for mechanical properties. There was a lot of quantum stuff in there as well. How that all kind of tied together to make this 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 almost like beautifully and geniusly designed little unit that is like the basis of like all computing. Like that to me is kind of crazy. Um, and when you, when you understand the science of how it works as well and how, how something like so fundamentally like quantum, like and seemingly so removed from any practical use can just be like converted into something, oh, now this is a switch. And then you're like, okay, it's a switch, so what? But then that switch, you put it together with other switches and suddenly you have like a computer, like it's, uh, to me that's crazy, to me that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's, I, I would think that like, yeah. <laughs> I think silicon has transformed the world in my lifetime. So maybe that's why I kind of look at it, you know, um, Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, Yeah. I love the answer, man. (laughs) 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 I mean, it's like, it's it's all, it's what material science is about, right? It's like from the micro scale to the macro scale, right? Mm -hmm. Everything going along the way. And it doesn't stop there. It keeps going until like our scale. And then global scale, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and then that, 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 that bridge from when the technology development stops and then actually how it interacts with the world, then that's yeah. where like business comes in, like, you know, all these other considerations come in and, you know, um, yeah, we can definitely talk generally about the trajectories of technology and, and what that means for mankind on a broader yeah. level. Can you, can you imagine yeah. like what those, what, what the material scientists back in like Bell Labs and in the 50s and things and like that would, would, would think when they see like the silicon how the silicon they've been working on is now used everywhere right? it's used everywhere and it's the same thing and it's the same kind of fundamental like quantum structure of silicon that allows it to be used to just make power from the sun mm-hmm. and to like allow us to have this call right now like 
Jess, what's going on? You know, mm-hmm. like, right. <laughs> and the same theory. It's the same like, one. It's the same yeah. thing. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, that's okay. crazy. That's, that's wonderful. So you transitioned from energy research to spirituality and coaching and the psychotherapy. Uh, I want to ask, how did that happen? Yeah, so right now I'm, I'm doing a kind of mix of, of kind of uh, business strategy, uh, financial modeling, consulting in the energy sector, like the climate transition space still. Um, but I'm increasingly moving my, my kind of efforts and attention towards this, let's call it a space of, of spirituality, psychotherapy, life coaching, these kinds of things. And the reasoning behind this, well, there's kind of personal reasons um in the sense that like genuinely this is something that i feel like i've had a very keen passion and interest in for now maybe five years um and that's probably like my longest sustained interest or passion like in my life i've I've always been somebody as i said that i've enjoyed doing many different things i've been good at doing many different things and the tricky thing within that is kind of identifying okay like I could do this I could do that I could do so many things but what do I actually want to do um and you know of all the problems and of all the kinds of things that I see you know in front of me like ever since I was a kid I've had this thing in my heart that I really I want to help people I want to help people be better feel not not be better because like not in terms of performance or whatever like just feel better like you know Mm -hmm. um and I've just been trying to figure out what the way to do that is and I thought for a while that, that it was like kind of um, technology-based um, for me. Um, but then, you know, I kind of felt at least with, with kind of research kind of things, like a lot of the things that you do is, you, you know, you specialize into like a specific kind of research and then your, your eggs are really kind of in that basket. And, you know, you don't know if that's going to take off or be important for the world or not. And it's just kind of this gamble that you take. Um, and that's kind of true for anything, actually, not just research, anything that you devote your life to, uh, if you kind of narrow down, which inevitably, at some point, we all do kind of narrow down into something that we build more experience and expertise in. You're kind of hedging your bet, like you don't know, is this going to actually get the level of impact that I want? And like, you know, all these things. So it's really important that you intrinsically enjoy the process. Um, and so that's what kind of made me shift my thinking in terms of what I want to do to like, you know, what's, it's not just about what's useful for the world or what I'm good at, but it's really this, this, this personal fit element, this kind of, this, this internal fulfillment element. That's something that is, is very important for me to be able to like really do something like for the sake of doing it and like pursue excellence and not just external success in whatever it is that I'm doing. Because I think one thing that has defined my kind of achievements so far is that my focus has always been internal on like, what am I satisfied with? What do I want to do? And not like what looks good to other people. Um, And that kind of helps you keep a sober head and helps you actually paradoxically achieve more as well. Um, So so that's kind of on a personal side, uh, why, like, I just kind of have this, this, this kind of real fascination and curiosity. And it's like, it's what I read about in my free time, you know? And so if that can actually become my work, then it's just like, I'm not working anymore. Like all I'm doing is like play to me, which is the kind of life that I'd like. Yeah. To live, you know? um, yeah, the, yeah. It just feels closely kind of authentic related to me. Now, 
more more as to why I think it's actually also an incredibly important thing in the world today uh, to for for more people to work on and to 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 be aware of. You know, you keep hearing, you know, we have this 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 mental health crisis going on, right? This is a very common thing that keeps being said. You know, here in the news and whatever. Um, but you know, I don't really think that it's just a crisis. I think that it's a tremendous opportunity. I think a lot of people, when they start naively looking at it, especially from a Western perspective, uh, or even a more academic or clinical perspective, they see like there is a disorder, there is a disease, there is something wrong here, there's something broken, there's something, um, you know, there, and and a lot of that is kind of seen with the light of like it's it's circumstance based, like you know it's because certain external stimuli are creating these problems. If we remove those stimuli, the problems will be gone. For me, the spirituality is all about the shift from like moving your concern from the external stimuli to the internal mechanisms and structures that govern the human mind and the human being, um, because those structures can be transformed and they can be discovered. And a lot of the structures that govern our behaviors, for example, like the ego, the persona, um, you know, these are actually not so set in stone. Like you can dissolve them. You can remove your, the influence that they have over you and discover what it means to be really free. Now, why is this important for the world? It's important for the world because right now, if you, if you want to look at what's going on, the entire economy is just a bunch of people interacting and exchanging value. That's really what it is, you know, through the mechanisms of money or favors or whatever it is. It's just all human beings are doing is, is kind of exchanging value. Now, what, what governs the decisions that a human being makes? This is the real key question, right? Because if we want to move forward in a kind of prosperous, peaceful, self-nourishing way as a society, we need to gain a collective wisdom on how to make better decisions um, and also increase trust in each other uh, so that we trust each other to make better decisions because we're fundamentally decentralized species, right? Like everybody has their own mind that, you know, they, they make their own decisions. Um, the key, to me, the key lever in all of this is how fulfilled is each human being? How self-satisfied is the, each node in this massive network of 7 billion people that we have right now? Because that is the key factor that will determine whether we will have conflict or cooperation. Because there's two choices you can always make, compete, competing or cooperating. Competition is usually, you know, it's, it's, it's motivated by a scarcity of resources historically, if you look at it, between tribes, between species, between whatever it is, there's scarcity of material resources. So I'm going to kill you so that I can get what I need for myself and my loved ones. That's the fundamental core rationale behind things like war, behind, you know, any kind of harm that you would impose on other people is ultimately to protect yourself or for your own gain, right? Now, this kind of, in the, in the, in the opposite sense, if you feel that there is safety, if you feel that there is trust between you and the other in whatever this interaction is, there is something that cooperation can be formed. It's like, I'll give to you, you give to me. I'm not trying to take something from you and you're not trying to take something from me. 
And in this mutual giving, if there can be trust that the giving will be reciprocal and it is reciprocated, positive sum value is created. There's more joy, more love, more fulfillment, more also material resources uh, can be created through cooperation than competition. Because competition, you need to consume resources in order to compete with the other person. And it's a negative feedback loop, right? That, 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 can, that can drive us really into extinction. Like if we have a global war, that's literally kind of what, what would happen, right? Um, whereas instead with, with cooperation, you already see it happening. Like the society, a lot of the material things in our society that we have already today, uh, these are really just the fruits of extremely insane, unfathomable large scales of cooperation, which have actually been enabled by money. Money is not just like this divisive kind of entity, right? Like, for example, like I bought this phone, right? You know, how many people have had to work on this phone? Like from the design to the conception, to the, to the you know, testing, to the actual manufacture, to the shipping, so many people cooperated to get me this phone. Um, and, you know, you can see that as a, as a, as a form of large-scale cooperation as well. Now, sorry, I know I'm, I'm not really explaining this in a very linear way, but this is a very yeah. high level that kind of, it's hard to kind of break this down into just one narrative. But so, so there's these key themes, competition, cooperation, right? What makes, so, so I think if we can agree that, you know, if everybody, if a critical mass of the nodes are in a competitive mindset where they feel like I need to take from other people, I need to, it's just like, I need to like screw other people over. It's all about me. It's like a kind of dogs fighting in a cage, you know? Um, it's, it leads to violence, brutality, antagonism, antagonism, like otherism, like a lot of div divisiveness in society. And it leads to a lot of kind of destruction, right? Um, yeah. And then instead, if you think about a world where everybody or a critical mass, the majority of people are actually in this cooperative mindset where they're feeling trusting, where they are willing, like you just meet somebody and they're willing to trust, they give to you. There's, there's love, there's, there's generosity, there's charity, like just ingrained within people and the way that they choose to live their lives, uh, not imposed by some external force, but genuine internal decision. This might sound like wacky, like heaven or like you know, the song Imagine by John Lennon, but just imagine like actually if that was the case, Mm -hmm. you tell me how that society is going to fall apart like it can't really you know unless like certain actors that are in this competitive mindset accrue enough power destructive power to like kind of destroy everyone else right but that's it's a much more robust civilization that is not gonna make itself extinct and it's also forget even robustness it's not just about survival of the human race it's a thriving civilization where people are actually happy and fulfilled right now we are definitely in a dominantly competitive mindset, right? Like the way that our economy is structured, the way that the way that the kind of culture around money is structured, like, you know, whether it's mainstream news or Instagram, it's all about amassing personal wealth and building a good life for yourself. And, you know, it doesn't matter what's happening to everyone else. That's kind of been the dominant kind of attitude. We see a shift in that. When we're talking about like, conscious business or environmental social responsibility. It's shifting what you value from just what's important to you in this individual body to what is important to the collective. And it's born through really a recognition that you could have been any one of these people. You don't really wanna live a life where you, like your happiness is dependent on other people being miserable because you could have easily been in that, in that kind of position, right? Like there is a kind of very intuitive sense of justice that is, is kind of triggered there. So that's kind of my framework for looking at the world and looking at not just like the safety of human civilization, but like 
the prosperity of everyone and how we can all interact. And when I think about kind of economic system reform, like the economy is 7 billion people interacting. That's what it is. There are structures, there are laws, there are limitations that shape what the economy can, can, can the, the forms it can take. And these will change with technology, with kind of, you know, things like blockchain and stuff might really change how the flows of money and the flows of value that are possible. But equally, if not more important, is the change within each individual node of the system. The, that, that change in mindset, that change in, in, in conscious experience and m- like getting a lot of people to ha- like operate from this place of inner fulfillment, which you can argue requires a certain level of material fulfillment, but it doesn't even actually really, if you look at like cases, right? Like, um, so that's to me seems like a much more neglected area because it's a much less tangible and a much kind of like, how do you do this? How do you transform people right like how do you make people feel fulfilled because and and just to just to just really hammer home the point if everyone is fulfilled and they feel safe and they have enough material things that they need for their family like no they're not starving or anything and but then they they you know they don't have perceived scarcity Mm. very key word perceived scarcity this is this is what i'm trying to eradicate this is this is what i think is this a real key killer here because what we have right now in this world is we have so much material abundance that has been created in the past hundred years, but you look how unequally it's distributed, how much injustice and unnecessary suffering there's still going on in the world. Why is this? It's because the people who have accrued the material resources have come, have done it through this kind of competitive mindset where it's like every time you, you're in competition, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to war, but it could even be this business mindset of like, uh, kill the competition, like be dominant, like this, this emotional state and this 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 signature it gets reinforced every time every time you learn basically oh if i am like a dickhead if i'm like very aggressive if i am like very don't care about other people look at all this money that i can get you learn that that is like you 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 learn that as an adaptive strategy of how to engage with the world and then you it's actually not possible for you to just switch over to like suddenly being a generous person like because you have this long historical patterns of thinking and compulsive behavior that and this very self-centered mindset that is very hard to peel off. Um, and so the thing is that that feeling of scarcity, you keep it within yourself, even though you might have started off poor materially, you became very rich, but you still have that feeling like, I need more. I need to make sure like I'm safe, my family's safe. But now it's not just enough that I'm wealthy and my, my children are wealthy, but their grandchildren, their great grandchildren, you want more and more and more. And there's also the analogy of material things, but it, it extends to everything, any, anything that we can desire. So perceived scarcity is the mental disease that is stopping us from transitioning from this competitive, this, this, from, from, to, from transforming these competitive spirals into cooperative abundance spirals that are nourishing and healthy for everyone in, in, in the kind of organic ecosystem of, of our organic economy, right? Like, um, so perceived scarcity, Okay, that was a very long spiel, but it's all coming down to perceived scarcity. And this is where spirituality, psychotherapy, this kicks in. Because the whole essence of all of this, you know, can be boiled down into, I feel that things are not okay. I feel that I'm not good enough, right? That's it. That is the feeling that literally, I think every human being, if not every human being, 99.9% of human beings carries around in them from a young age in their hearts, in their lives. And a lot of the times we're not even aware that we have these feelings. We're not even aware that this is the sentence that is actually motivating so much of our actions. 
And we are stuck in this distracted kind of, we're stuck under this model of the world where we think, where we genuinely believe it's because of the external circumstances that I feel this. Let me change those. Let me transform those. Let me make my life better. Let me get more wealth. Let me like, you know, let me steal from this store. Let me murder this person like that has aggravated me so much. You know, different people have different circumstances and what they think is kind of acceptable and what is okay. But it's all motivated by that inner feeling of scarcity, of emptiness, of like, I need something from the outside to make myself feel okay. Spirituality and psychotherapy is, I mean, these are just words really, but um, basically it's introspection. By fostering a culture of introspection within every human being, they realize that the most important relationship they have in their lives is the one that they have with themselves that the biggest resource that each of us has in our lives is our own conscious experience, is our ability to be present, is our ability to be loving and forgiving and compassionate. This is not just like a soft thing of like, oh, let's be nice to others. It's like, it's so necessary and so saving to like your own internal feeling, like to shift your perspective towards giving as opposed to taking. It's literally the most beneficial thing you can do for yourself, ironically. Um, and basically, it's, it's not just about explaining this to people. Um, it's about g helping people, finding the ways of facilitating people to take this internal journey within themselves and see it for themselves. Because until they see it for themselves, it's not going to actually affect who they are or the decisions they make. And so that's my mission is to, um, or at least my mission for now. Like, but I, I like, I'm always scared to say, like, this is my life mission or whatever, because you know, I'm always reserved the right to change my mind. But um, genuinely, I feel very deeply called to this. Um, like, I think it's super, super, super essential to learn, first of all, within myself, how to remove or heal this feeling of, of, of wound, of hurt, of, in, of not feeling good enough, of this internal kind of uh, scarcity, understand how this affects my life, my decisions, and then understand how this works, these mechanisms work in other people. Um, my life coaching clients, which are not just clients, it's not just like a business. It's also almost like my data set. Like if these are experiments that I'm running to see what I think I've discovered within myself, if this is an, an universal truth, that's my hypothesis. Let's see, can this, will, will somebody else come to the same realization? Will, will, they, will this also like help them move forward? And so I'm building up slowly this set of things of universal truths about the human condition, right? Um, that everyone experiences, every single one experiences, because we obviously live very different lives on the surface. But if you go deep enough, a lot of the wounds are actually the same. A lot of our things have to do with how our parents treated us, how you know our society treated us as we were growing up. And that's where the psychotherapy lens is really useful to understand people's narratives and their narrative kind of struggles. But then also the whole transpersonal spiritual side of things, you know, they, really diving into into that and, and and unlocking that kind of transformation for people as well it's very early stages but this is like the first step for me is is finding it in myself so that i i'm coming more and more increasingly from a place of experience and not just theory um and then also you know helping other people with that in itself that is its own great reward and achievement and it's fantastic even just to help a handful of people but in the really long term my dream would be to work um with with others on transforming and reforming the education system um because if we can identify and agree on these kind of universal truths or not even truths because it's not like i'm 
in my life coaching session, I'm telling you like, oh, this is how it is. It's not, I'm asking you questions so that you reflect on yourself so that you question, why did I feel that? Or like you ask, like, why is this important to me? And slowly through the interest, you, you arrive to the core. I'm not trying to force an answer ever. Like I'm genuinely, every time I do this, it's like a test. Mm-hmm. Is my truth, is that really true? You know, and hopefully we can, we can devise effectively a curriculum of introspection that can be embedded into large scale education so that kids are actually taught something that is not just useful for them, but is, I would argue, indispensable for them to live a fulfilled life. Because if you look at the education system at the moment, man, like um, it's really heavily modeled on the uh, scalable education system created by Victorian society. And that was created at a time where there was the industrial revolution. They needed people to work in factories. And if you look at actually how school is structured, timetabled classes, a bell rings that tells you when you can go to lunch, like you're, you're batched with, in, with other people, not in terms of your abilities or interests, but in terms of your age, right? There's a lot of elements about it that very much mirror like a factory system. And indeed, if you look at the way most schools teach you to think and teach you to behave, they teach you to respect authority, they teach you to comply, follow instructions, to become a useful tool, right? A useful weapon that can be used by somebody else who's pulling the strings and calling the shots to be like a productive employee right? That's what it's really training you to be. It's not training you to be a fulfilled human being. It's not training you to think for yourself or make your own decisions. It's training you to be a useful tool. Um, And so I think my work is kind of working from where I am right now backwards. Like I have done a lot of internal work uh, and to, to, to decondition myself from that thing of like, I need to be useful. I need to be productive. I want to be a good employee. I want to be, because that fear is not just put into you in school. It's like the whole capitalist narrative, like graduate, get a job, like be employable, like all these things, you know, um, or, or you'll be fucked, like yeah. comply, <clears throat> submit, or you'll be fucked. Like that's pretty much in a nutshell what it is. And, you know, obviously um, there are also really great jobs out there. There are also really fulfilling things you can do with your life, but most people end up doing things that like really don't mean anything to them. Um, so working backwards, helping people like my coaching is focused, well, right now, actually I'm coaching three, three professionals in, in like a company that I'm also doing freelance work with, um, who are kind of on a more senior level. Um, but I want to also work with people who are, you know, young professionals, university students trying to make big life decisions, help them through their anxieties. Not, not by like just telling them it's going to be okay or telling them like apply to this or go to this like kind of career council or whatever. Like it's not, it's really much deeper, some, like a learning, a wisdom that will stay with them for the rest of their lives. That's, that's a real focus of, of the work that I'm trying to do. Um, and I'm also like writing an ebook uh, on like kind of mental health for university students specifically, especially kind of tailored, I guess, towards high performers, high achievers, like perfectionists, these kind of things really drawing from my personal experience, the things that I've learned um, studying to be a therapist and everything and trying to, to kind of really help people, like give people the tools, the toolkit to like unblock and understand themselves. Um, that's really the aim. And eventually trickling that down to like younger and younger students so that it's not, it's not this thing of like, oh, you've been conditioned in this kind of way that is not optimal for like you actually being happy. Now let's decondition yourself and learn how to like bridge the gap of like, you know, you've been conditioned to be this tool 
now become your own tool, like be the master of the tool, like choose what you want to do freely in life, you know. Um, it's, it's then more like from the beginning, if every child was just given the blessing and the gift of like being told by somebody who really knows and deeply understands what it means to be a human being, which 99% of people don't, myself included, I'm only scratching the surface, right? Like, but the human being is actually, the deeper you go into like introspection, you realize like how, like there's a lot of mystical, mysterious things, a lot of very powerful things that people are capable of that we cannot fully understand or explain in current scientific models. There's a deep, intimate, organic connection that you have to like life itself and like this wider, bigger orchestrating force that I can't convince you of with argument. You must just feel it and experience and see how real it is. Um, so if, if every child was kind of equipped with that, and again, I don't think it's controversial. This is not a religious thing. It's not telling you to believe in a certain God or believe in anything. It's literally just telling you to look at yourself clearly and teach you how to that practice, that habit of looking within yourself to find the answers that only you can find about what's true for you. If people, if children are empowered that way, man, like what is possible? Like, I really think a utopia is possible, like heaven on earth, really. Um, yeah, it, it reminds me of, of this. I'm sorry, I know I've been talking for a long no, time. No, no, it's been, it's been amazing, yeah. Keep, keep going, man, um, keep going. This is what it's for. <laughs> <laughs> like, I remember when I was 10 years old, my teacher uh, at school, she, she told us this example that has stuck with me ever since then. It really hit me, like, powerfully. He said, heaven and hell, this is what they look like. Hell is a dining room with a long table. Everybody's sat at dinner, right? Everybody's very hungry. Everybody's eager to eat. The food is served. But everybody, you know, nobody has hands. Nobody is allowed to like eat with their hands. They cannot touch the food with their hands. Instead, they have these long, long chopsticks, right? Um, and I think my mother actually told me another version of the story, but with like ladles on the elbows, it doesn't matter what the utensil is. But the point is like, they can't, these are really, really long chopsticks. They have to hold one in each hand. It's very heavy. And everybody's just trying to eat from the table, right? Everybody's just trying to, you know, eat the food. They're, they're starving. They're hungry. They're weeping. They're miserable. You know, they all feel like, you know, deprived. They are deprived and depraved and desperate. And they just, for the life of them, they cannot, they cannot get any food in their mouths. And that's how they spend eternity in starvation and in misery. Heaven is the same room, is the same table, the same chopsticks. But instead of everybody trying to eat from the table, people are feeding each other. And everybody's happy. Everybody's full. And that's the only difference. And to me, that hit me really deep because it, it was very, it's a very wise story because I genuinely believe like, you know, heaven and hell that you see even in religions like Christianity, Islam, all these things. I don't think that they are literal places that go, you go after death. I think that they are metaphors for how life can be on earth while you are alive. Life can be heaven or it can be hell. Which one are you living in? It depends. You're trying to feed yourself or you're trying to feed other people. It's very simple. Yeah, I think... Uh, hmm. That that story um, is yeah, it really resonates with me because um, mm. that was it was something that I realized um, back in I think like 
year eleven, when um mm. when a, a lot of quite a few people were trying to be competitive and uh not sharing any of their work or resources that they made for revision, and then I realized that like more than one person can do well, you know, and if any if anything, when you share resources, um you probably do better, and everyone probably probably do better, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm really glad that you went deep into your motivations, uh, why you're doing it, the personal and also external uh, for, for the world uh, reasons. And you hit, you, you nailed uh, some of the <laughs> other questions that I had, had already. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> like you talked about, um, you talked about what motivates you. You talked about what, what some clients could come to you with, right? With, um, what they're trying to achieve or uh, whether just whether uh, only a, trying to achieve things and um, for success is the right thing to do. Mm. Talked about the critical mass of nodes in a system being competitive, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and it's also very topical because I, I don't know if you saw the news literally today, Russia declared war on Ukraine, right? Mm. And uh, and invasions already started. So they're talking about improving the collective and the system by going all the way down to the individual, right? A different twist on it because going down to the individual, but also thinking of, of the collective at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's something really special that yeah, you're trying to do. Oh, yeah. And, uh, um, I think it's, a, it's also quite important that uh, and I realized that you're quite self-aware that um, it's, it is about spirituality and it's about helping people, um, but you're being very pragmatic with it, very practical. And uh, you said that you think that it could have been your education that um, mm-hmm. could have helped with that. And I, I think so. It could, it could, it could may well be, uh, but it, it seems like a lot of things are coming together for you uh, that makes you the right person to do this. So, um hopefully (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um so you you told me that you're working on some products and um on spirituality coaching that was Mm -hmm. the ebook right Um, yeah yeah that was the the ebook that i'm i'm working on um and yeah the the kind of the kind of rationale behind that i guess is um you know one it's it's much more like even just from the point of view of like, you know, delivering a message, it's much more scalable to, to do something that's digital. And, you know, like this podcast, for example, like, um, you know, many people can listen to it and, you know, we've only had this conversation once. Right. Now, the reason that I'm trying to, I guess, sell this ebook is I'm also like everything I do in my life is pretty much an experiment to see how I feel like. So Mm -hmm. this as well is, is like a practical way of deciphering, how I feel about coupling this mission of spreading spirituality with also my own personal financial gain, because at the end of the day, you know, as much as there's this, this, this really deep yearning in me to be like super selfless and like, you know, help other people and all this kind of stuff. I'm also just like, you know, a monkey that walks on two legs. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm just a human being, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I want, I want also for myself, like, not like, material success like being like richer or whatever like you know it's not like this kind of hustle i don't want to be a millionaire or anything like like it's not it's not about that it's just 
I want to make sure that I have the comfort to make, be able to make free decisions that I'm not like dependent on anybody else for money that I can provide a good life for myself and my family that I would eventually like to have. Like, um, and so that those kind of considerations are also there. And for me, what I've seen a real shift in, like, if you look at the modern spiritual community that is emerging, like, and I've been becoming more and more involved in this space. Like literally over the past three years, I've gone from feeling like, wow, I'm the only one who understands, like that I know who understands or feels this, who is alive today, that is not like this, like guru or whatever, to then actually just knowing and seeing so many people in this space that are also on their journey of awakening, which is so inspiring and so, so great to see that there is this kind of wave rising. And what you see within this wave is like, there's a lot of people that are very shameless about like making money from like online courses on spirituality or coaching or, you know, something like that. And for me, this question is like, there's something that immediately I feel kind of uncomfortable with like, oh, you're offering somebody like genuine help, but you're taking money in return. Like the question is always like, why aren't you doing this for free? Like, why aren't you like, if this is really something that people need so badly, why aren't you giving it away for free? And it reminds me of that point that you made about Olio, um, you know, earlier where, I think there, there is this really bad stigma around money um, generally amongst people who care about making the world a better place. Like they see money as like an inherently evil thing that money corrupts and all these things. But I really don't think that's the case. Like money is a tool. It's quite neutral. It's power. It's influence. That's what it is. How you use that, whether you use it for power, corruption, um, you know, uh, furthering inequality in society or whether you use it for the opposite, it really depends on whether you feel scarce inside or not. If your cup is full and you feel I'm happy with this much money or less money or whatever, it doesn't really matter. I'm good. Like, you know, I'm good in this moment and I'll be good no matter what happens. Then like you have no real thirst to like keep amassing wealth. You're free to like give it to people who need it or to use it in a way that helps other people. So, and I also think that we shouldn't have, like, I think it's it's very self, self-sabotaging to to put forward these narratives of like this kind of martyrdom or like this kind of puritanism or like, oh, if you're somebody who's in the business of helping people or your life is devoted to helping people, you should be like this really like poor volunteer that like never makes any money. Like you should be totally giving your life. Like teachers are a great example, right? Teaching is like such a hugely important influential job. Salaries are very low because they say like, oh, if you're a teacher, like you should really care about the students, not the money. I'm just like, if you raise like the average salary of a teacher to like 40K a year, well, I think you'd get a lot like, like better teachers in a lot of roles, like, you know, um, like I don't, I don't see why it has to be this thing, like where if you want to help the world, you must reach this level of selflessness that is like Jesus-like. That's the bar to start. No, that's to me is ridiculous. And if I'm being honest, I'm not at that level. I have my own personal desires that are just purely for my benefit, my enjoyment, my gain, not benefiting anybody else. Does that make me evil? No, I think we all want that, right? Like we want that kind of also that that joy for ourselves. And what I've actually been realizing very paradoxically is like I came from this kind of, like when I was in uni, I was like, you know, seeing all my friends wanting to become consultants or like finance people. I was like, guys, this is so fucking disappointing. Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, we, we are, you know, we should be looking to like change the world. We should be looking to do something that really matters. Like forget all this money and all this stuff. But then like you graduate and these kind of pressures hit you for real. You're like, ah, yeah, like uh, I do kind of need to make money. (laughs) Um, And um, (laughs) 
but but it's like this 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 puritanism this kind of i'm going to make myself suffer or remove power or joy or things from myself in order to be able to help people that's actually like this kind of old model of like like the most masochistic attitude towards spirituality or towards helping other people that you see sometimes i would say uh in certain like religions or certain like religious groups like this very austere kind of mentality like no joy for me no pleasure for me like you know that just kind of shows that you know you really don't trust yourself to like play with these tools that you think that they will corrupt you that means that inside there is something within you that is corruptible which means that you have further introspective work to do to clean that out of yourself because if you have somebody who is like genuinely like very loving very giving self fulfilled but then also has material wealth the things that they can do they're i think they're much more likely to change the world than like you know a starving person who can only like give their time you know not to knock anybody who is like on a path of like volunteerism or really self-giving like I, there's no judgment about that but like an example for for example of an entrepreneur who is also very spiritual and is doing i think a lot of great work to sh- to shape culture to to change the world is Aubrey Marcus um he has a podcast and um he also I mean there's a lot of online content things he is a phenomenal human being like i he has changed my life for sure in the past few months um and it's shown me also how you can balance material wealth and success with like spiritual wealth and success if that makes sense yeah um as you said there's lots of stigma uh, with money but mm-hmm. um uh, you, you could argue that uh, if like when you win with a like with a fee with a charging business model mm-hmm. it allows it actually enables you to do more of this mm-hmm. uh, coaching and helping people right mm-hmm. and um, just like what you said earlier it allows you to scale it right mm-hmm. um, uh, i wanted to touch upon uh, what you said about um, people becoming like almost like martyrs and cutting themselves yeah. off from everything else um it i'm as you, just now you said to not be not to judge uh and i, yeah. I say rightly so but um it it does it does seem like uh that it, there's an air of judgment coming from um some people who would uh cut themselves off from everything else and look down upon anyone who um tries to live a more balanced life that does also consider money right? what, what do you think what do you think of that try be uh, about it no and you know i i don't think i don't think you're wrong i think there are a lot of people um judgmentalism is one of the great poisons in the world today and you know a lot of social media culture cancel culture it really kind of highlights this like how readily people judge but it's not it's with a kind of zest that like it's very clear that they feel the need to judge in order they're gaining some sort of comfort reassurance some some internal reward for that judgment that they feel like they need and the reason i say no judgment is is not to say that they're not being judgmental people for me to say that that's not really necessarily a judgment like it could just be a fact like but you know we all have this tendency of judgment and i think it's really important to to try and find a way to respond to judgmentalism with non-judgmentalism because if you try and just judge the people who are being judgmental one you have become one of them and you're just perpetuating this cycle again if you look if you think about these in terms of cycles of 
competition or like destructive cycles versus constructive cycles, like feedback loops, basically, right? Um, if, you know, I see somebody who is like, oh, you know, if somebody tells me like, oh, why are you selling this ebook online? Like, you know, you should be just giving it for free, like, and all these things. Maybe one day I will decide to give it for free, you know what I mean? Like, it's that, that's, not, that's not the point here, but it's like, it, it, they start like kind of attacking me, you know? I would feel very, I feel defensive. And my impulse would be like, hey man, fuck you. Like, you know, um, I'm just trying to like live my life. Okay. I'm just a person like, but if I can just take the, the you know, if I have the kind of meditative ability to just let that pass through me, to let that hurt go through me and realize take a second to see where is this person coming from and realize that, you know, if I look at every judgment that I've ever made on somebody, it's not actually really about them. It's more because of something inside myself that I'm unhappy with that I might not even understand. And I've seen that, I've realized that enough times about judgmental attitudes that I've had in myself to know that this is pretty much, well, I know that this is always the case, like in every time somebody is really judging, right? Um, again, you can never know 100%, but like I'm pretty confident, like, um, so the, ideally the way that I would like to respond to somebody like that is to try to really just compassion and, and trying to understand what is the hurt that you have inside yourself that is making you judgmental. For example, um, if I reflect on kind of my own, like, you know, my own kind of thing of when I was like kind of berating my friends for like getting consulting jobs or like finance jobs or whatever. Um, I was just, I was really just trying to talk to myself because at the same time, I myself was also interviewing for some consulting jobs or whatever. And, and I was really projecting onto them these wounds that I had inside. One of the wounds was like a feeling of guilt. I feel this guilt still today where it's like, I've been so blessed in my life to have had a good education, to have had like a stable family, to have gone to a great university to have been blessed also with a level of intellect that has allowed me to achieve certain things. I didn't do this. Like, you know, I've taken the steps along the way, but a lot of the stuff has, has just come from somewhere else. Like, you know, and I look around and there's so many people who have not seemingly not so blessed and I feel guilty about this. Like, what did I do to deserve this? And a lot of my motivation uh, to try and help other people has come from trying to absolve also this feeling of guilt, which is actually also not good, um, but that's a separate conversation. But um, so like, I was definitely projecting that guilt onto them. I was like, you should also feel guilty. Like, you know, that you're in this blessed position. You should also like me want to do something to like be really directly helping people or something. Um, so that's like an example, sorry, of where I was judging other people because of something that I was upset about inside myself. And so if that somebody was to come to me and be like, oh, why are you selling this ebook online? Or for example, like, why is Olio not, not free? Like, I think what you'll find is people who are very judgmental of others are very judgmental of themselves. And that's why they're also kind of always kind of a bit on edge and a bit aggressive and so eager to jump and like hurt other people is because they have this hurt they have this wound within themselves that instead of healing it because potentially they don't know how to heal it, they are just lashing at it. They're picking at it. They're poking it with their judgmental mind. Like, you know, if they make a mistake or they do something like, oh, you fucking idiot. Like, you know, the self-talk that people have, yeah. That's how they relate to themselves. How we relate to ourselves is how we relate to other people. How we relate to other people is how we relate to ourselves. And there is no distinction here. This is a very profound fundamental truth that 
is really self-evident when you start seeing it. And that's what, what you were saying before on like, you know, my big kind of rambling on like the collective and then the individual and all this stuff. These are not just kind of related, whatever. They're like so deeply fundamentally related by the laws of nature, it almost feels, you know. Um, to heal the collective is to heal the individual and to heal the individual is to heal the collective. And this is like step-by-step step, a cycle that needs to happen like this. Um, because, you know, if you just start looking at it from the point of view of like, how do I shape the collective? How do I transform the collective on a macro scale? You're basically trying to impose like brute force. You're removing yourself from the system to try and act on it from the outside in a very mechanical way. You're seeing the world and the economy like as if it's an engine and you're the engineer, that you're the, the control master who has the power that you're gonna shape things. And you see, that's how our power structures are made. Like governments, we elect like one person to be president or prime minister and they have so much influence over the rest of this stuff. I think our, over time, if we can, if more people become awake in this way, more people become trusting, more people become also autonomous to live their own decentralized but self-governed lives, the need for powerful government is reduced. The need for this kind of mechanistic approach where we step outside and manipulate everything is reduced because the real profound thing to realize is that the key to achieving global peace is to achieve individual peace for everyone. Because the, the road to understanding and embracing the whole world is understanding and embracing yourself because on the surface we look very different different skin colors different backgrounds different languages you know different like you know there was a time when like you know if you and i met like 100 200 years ago there's just no way we could have this conversation we might even try to fight each other just because we we don't understand what the other person wants but when you go deeply you see that what you want is actually very simple and then you're also able to see that what everybody else really wants is actually literally the same stuff and in that shared desire, in that shared desire for peace and love and feeling safe and accepted, and that's what we really want. When you realize that everybody really wants that, that's the road towards peace. Because now everybody wants the same thing. Now we can start strategizing together. We can start doing things that allows people to achieve the same goals. And then I think the whole economy can flourish, not like an engine that runs like a well-oiled machine, but like a beautiful garden where the, it's an ecosystem where like the entities in themselves are the ones that are nourishing each other and allowing each other to live. It's not like this big master that sits outside and thinks and like from an ivory tower and like shapes everything, you know, that's just never going to happen. Right. Like, um, yeah. That's, that's, that's great. Where, where did you learn to, uh, to speak like this man with the old garden and everything <laughs> like that? <laughs> um, I think, you know, it's really um, like this garden analogy is just, it just came to me. Like, um, I think it's because I've been thinking about this stuff and, and you know, introspecting on this stuff for a few years now. Um, and I'm not tired of it. You know, I've said this before in many cases and it's really refreshing every time that I'm not, I'm not getting tired of my own voice. Um, and I think that this is because this is perennially relevant. Like this was an important question 3000 years ago. Mm. It was an important question 5,000 years ago, and it's, and it's an important question today. And it's the question is, why can't we all just get along? That's really the only question, you know? And within that question is, why can't we get along with ourselves first? Like, what's going on here? Why, why is it that if I sit in a room for half an hour doing nothing, I'm going to feel like shit because I'll realize how much garbage there is in my head. Why is that? How do we change that? That's, um, yeah, for me, this is like, 
the, one of the most important questions. And I've been influenced a lot and I should give credit where credit is due. Um, I've been influenced a lot by two kinds of, I guess they're kind of a- academics um, in, at MIT. They really kind of frame this uh, a lot for me. They, they've written this great book called Why Can't We Just Get Along where this, this whole thing of competitive spirals and cooperative spirals and looking at the world through game theory and all this kind of stuff. A lot of ideas really shaped my thinking from them. They ran this little course at MIT. Um, their names are Henry Lieberman and Christopher Fry. Um, yeah, they're they're very eccentric kind of. Uh, I guess they're they're older older gentlemen. Like uh, I don't know, maybe in their late 50s, 60s, something like that. A bit kind of wacky scientist kind of vibe, but really love lovely warm people that have just genuinely just made this book because they think it's important and they just put it online and it's. Um, yeah, these kinds of macro questions uh, have always interested me. So, so um, when you when you first started uh, diving deeper into this uh, spirituality uh, coaching stuff, did you did you receive any like pushback from family members or friends? Do you have any? Like, I'm cool, sure you received yeah. a lot of self doubt <laughs> as well, right? <laughs> yeah, man, self doubt, uh, definitely, and self doubt is is almost always I feel informed by doubt that other people have. Um, yeah, there, there there was definitely pushback, um, and there was some some support as well. I'm not gonna lie. Mm. Um, like from from my family, there has definitely been pushback from from my parents. Pushback is not the right word because I think, you know, it's not like they're forcing me to do anything or, or anything like that. It was a lot of questioning, a lot of doubt, a lot, a lot of kind of, you know, which affected me. Um, yeah. What's to make and, sure and how you're confident were, I was. Like, serious yeah. about it, right? <laughs> yeah, not, not even just serious about it. It's, it's like they just, from their model of how they see the world and life and, and how to be live a safe, happy life, it was like, very much, you know, you you kind of there are certain key professions that are earn you good money and are like respected in society. Engineer, lawyer, doctor, you know, very standard. And it's kind of like something within that space, or to like do something with business. And they're basically where like, you know, how are you gonna make money doing spirituality stuff? Like, you know, it's it's like right now my life has gone from being I've, I've always been in this pipeline, I feel, always on on the way, shuttling, just just set on this conveyor belt to like jump through the hoops. Basically, like military mercenary training, like, you know, doing great at school, going to Oxford, doing great there, then going, being a consultant in a company, doing good there. Like, just always, like, again, just the task has been given, I will do it. Like, but then the question of what task do I actually want to do? It's a very different kind of question that nobody had prepared me for to, to, to how to ask and how to answer that within myself. And, um, it's almost like I don't have any gripes about my parents' doubts or like the lack of kind of blind support. Like, because ideally I would have loved for them to be like, yeah, totally 100% do it. But like, I also understand where they're coming from. Like when I was 15, I was like, I'm going to be an actor. Like I'm 100% going to be an actor. And like, I don't care if I'm like homeless for three years, I'll be like an actor. And like my parents were like, hmm, uh, I'm glad that they took me out of it, to be honest, in retrospect. Um, and... But this was like a real test almost. I, I see it as a trial by fire in a sense, like, because my parents' like opinion carries a lot of weight, like, and maybe this is a cultural thing. Maybe it's a human thing. Like, I don't Same know. Way, yeah. Um, yeah. And, but I just started to kind of realize that like, it was almost like a rite of passage when there was something 
within myself an inner calling that I felt a conviction for that people around me did not like, it's not like they were necessarily telling me no, 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 um, especially in my friend circle, but like they didn't necessarily get it. Like they didn't they were just kind of like, okay, if you want to do it, do it. Like, but nobody was going to push me to do it. But it's almost like that needed to be the case because I needed to take that leap to be like, I, nobody else is telling me to do this. I feel this calling inside me. Let me listen to this voice and not and learn to not need the support and the validation of other people. It's a big step towards being a more self-assured adult and a self-assured person for me to take that. Um, and so in, in a sense, like, although at the time it was frustrating and I was upset and angry or, or like I had a lot of doubt and everything about these kind of decisions or, you know, leaving Aurora, leaving the company to just, cause, cause the thing is, it's crazy as well. Yeah, like I wanted to leave without a plan. Like this is actually what I wanted. Like, and every <laughs> single person told me I was crazy. Yeah. Like, you know, to leave my job. Like my parents were like, first of all, like why you want to leave the job? Like it's a great job or okay. If you want to leave, if you're not happy with certain things about it, like not happy with a consulting lifestyle, whatever it is, find another job. Even my friends were like, well, find another job or have a plan of what you're going to do. And I was like, no. Like, that's not what I want. <laughs> and over six Because you continue on the pipeline, like, right? If, uh, exactly. Yeah. I just continue on the pipeline. I want to be like, no, I want to be free. Now I have my own money. Like, I want to actually be free. See, what is this one when he's free and he doesn't have any ties? What is he going to do? Like, I'm, I want to give the space for that to the, discover that. Because I think this is a big shift as well. Like, you know, we we're talking about education before and the pipeline and the pigeonholing as well, you mentioned pigeonholing we are so thirsty to pigeonhole ourselves and to like be able to label ourselves as like this is my profession this is what i do this is what i'm gonna do and why it's because in this dialogue that we've constructed in society like to be predictable means you are desirable as an employee that's really it like and but that runs so deep because the desire to be desirable as an employee is attached to like livelihood money food shelter like very very so it's very deeply rooted in our emotional system to like this deep drive for survival so a lot of us equate survival with being a good employee right and that's kind of what we're taught even in school indirectly not not explicitly we're told that but um that's kind of what is most important and the problem with with the pigeonholing is that inevitably you are going to suffocate some part of yourself because we're not meant to fit into these pigeonholes. We're multidimensional beings, right? Some of us are more multidimensional than others. Some people are very happy just doing one thing. You know, I can't speak for, excuse me, I can't speak for everyone. But like, you know, if you see like an artist like who, who does music, you know, and that, that, that's their passion, their craft, and like, that's what they would want to do every day, right? Or like a carpenter who just loves crafting things, right? Like, you know, so there is specialization is in a sense natural, but this kind of pigeonholing in order to appease other people, in order to be favorable or like kind of to be, to make yourself a desirable prospect for like this more powerful authority, like the employer that's going to employ you, that, that, that kind of thing there, it really, it makes people prioritize and rush to be a way that is pleasing to others before even asking what is pleasing to me before creating that space for themselves of like what do I really want and the honest truth is like I I've always wanted to have a plan like I've always really felt this itch like oh I need to have a plan I need to have a plan and I'm constantly trying to say like oh but what does this mean for the next few months with me for years in the past year of my life since I've quit this job 
it's really been a dive into embracing the inherent uncertainty of life because all plans are doomed to fail. Like I've really come to realize this. Like life will throw unexpected stuff at you and that's the way that it's meant to be. That's the game of life. If you could predict and plan every day from now until the end of your life, you might as well not live. Like there's no, there's no mystery left. There's no life left. Life is this organic, spontaneous, chaotic thing that you have to dance with. It's, a, it's like a dance. It's not a, it's not a script. It's not a story. It's not a journey. It's, it's a dance, right? Like it, it's happening now. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. The key thing I would say to, to your listeners, because I know this is a pressure that like a lot of people feel, what am I going to do? What am I going to be? Like, what's my career going to be? What's my life going to look like? Your parents want a plan from you. Society wants a plan from you. Your employer is going to ask you five-year plan, whatever. Literally every job interview that I had, if somebody asked me five-year plan, not be made on everyone, but like uh, after a point, I was just like, no, I don't believe in having a five-year plan. Like I just told them, I think it's a very stupid idea. Like I, I like, there's no point. Like I know the kind of person that I want to be. I know internally how I would like to become more self-aware, more confident, better leadership skills, better these kinds of things. I know I want, but the actual external bits, that's just the confetti. Like that's just like the, that's not what life is really about. So you know, as much as there is a pressure from everywhere outside and even inside your own mind to pigeonhole yourself, don't do it. <laughs> and I'm saying that to myself as much as I'm saying it to you, to your listeners, mm-hmm. because it creeps up, man. Like even literally yesterday or even two days ago, I was just like stressing about like, what does this mean for me? Am I going to be a life coach or am I a business consultant? Am I, yeah. is, am I just going to do life coaching forever? Am I going to do online entrepreneurship? And then it's just, I keep reminding myself like, there's no need to say what I'm going to do. Nobody's actually asking me, what are you going to do in a year's time? Nobody really cares that much. Like, why do I need to limit myself? Like, you know, if I can just trust myself to dance the dance, like then that should be enough, right? I think uh, what you said about um, uh, people uh, really liking to specialize uh, and uh, show themselves as desirable and useful, right? Um, yeah. I think, <laughs> I think, uh, that's I, I feel like that's a bit of a myth to be honest because mm. in the through doing this podcast and interviewing a lot of PhD students and people who are really specialized who uh like know so much mm. about one area like like it, it, it just happens to come out that they know a lot about another area as well and that they've mm-hmm. got a lot of different hobbies and doing things it's just that mm. what they project is the one special specialism right and society likes right. to latch onto that, you know, uh, right. because yeah. it, it's uh, it, it makes sense in the, the liberal sense where if you put enough effort to one thing, you can be a specialist in it, right? And if you put all your time into it, that's what that's what people like people would like you to think, right? Because it means that you would devote yourself to one one cause or one mission. Maybe that's what companies mm. want you to do, right? But it's a, yeah I, I haven't i haven't seen that actually i've seen the opposite actually um mm-hmm. and uh what, what you touched upon with with it being able to plan everything out um i've like my friends and i came up with a with a new way of reframing things where if something turns out badly or uh it doesn't turn out the way we want it to be just say you know it, it, it's an adventure and uh, it, it allows <laughs> us to reframe it in a way that uh makes it positive right um, yeah, I had an idea when you when you were talking, where we could actually do uh, a little dem- a demonstration where you 
you walk me through uh, a certain problem that um, that uh, a lot of people have. So uh, in Oxford, I think, and at universities and jobs, a lot of people have imposter syndrome, right? Right. So, and I'm, I'm sure that you've had friends and you probably experienced imposter syndrome yourself in many different areas. Oh yeah, so, definitely. definitely. Um, as, a, as a coach and as uh, someone who's looked at spirituality a lot, what what would you what would you do? What what kind of questions would you ask uh, someone who's dealing with imposter syndrome? So the questions that I end up asking is is basically like so I have like certain questions that I've learned that are are quite good in general, but it always depends on what the person's actually saying. So it's always kind of in response. Um, we can do one of two things. Um, either I can talk you through my thoughts on imposter syndrome and what I've seen, uh, you know through my work um, or we can do a little live coaching demonstration and you know if you if that's something that you experience we can talk through that sure i'd be i'd to be you. happy to i'd be happy to be <laughs> to, to help you yeah okay so yeah great just to tell you a little bit about um where i've sure, had that yeah. uh, i had that a lot last year um well mm-hmm. actually more in 2020 um, mm-hmm. uh, having gotten into university uh, but and uh, having gotten financial support as well with it mm-hmm. from a, from a foundation, uh, I felt mm-hmm. like I was not deserving of it, and that mm. I really needed to live up to it. I really needed to show. Um, I I really needed to make the people who gave it to me feel like it was the right thing to do. But mm. I was not. Com- I had I didn't I didn't get to that point yet where uh, emotionally. Maybe even um, I felt like I was far, far more um, unworthy of it. Yeah. So, um, and when I got to university as well, being quite isolated during the COVID times, it continued mm-hmm. to feel like that because I didn't get to talk to very many people. So, but what would you, what would you say to mm-hmm. me if I were at that well, time? I ask uh, this feeling of of not feeling worthy can you describe where you feel it in your body um a lot of it is in my is my head i think Mm. um usually it would be uh like thoughts basically that that Mm -hmm. keep coming and um happens to be at night as well quite a bit at night yeah Mm. Uh, what kind of thoughts uh that i should be doing a lot more that uh, mm-hmm. going on LinkedIn and seeing what people are doing, I, I should I should at least do something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Would you say the word should comes up a lot? Yes, yes, um, it, it it does because uh, it's almost like um, uh, I have a duty, right, mm. to to be at that point, but I'm not, and at um. I'm basically talking as what I was uh, back in October, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 2020. Uh, at that point, I kept thinking that uh, I had no idea how to go about these things. And maybe that was a mistake that um, the sole fact that I had no idea how to go through it and go about it uh, made mm-hmm. me unworthy. So, yeah, a lot mm-hmm. of that. So I'm curious if this word should when you say, for example, 
I should be doing it. And, and I'd like to bring this, if it's all right with you, a bit more to the present day. Sure. Uh, it sounds like your imposter syndrome was kind of, you felt it more, this kind of feeling of, uh, of, of imposter unworthiness, let's call it, um, uh, what it is. This is something that, you know, is, 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 is I know is, is very difficult to shake. I presume, is it something that you, you still kind of experience, maybe in different contexts, maybe different things, but is this something that's still part of like your emotional life? Yeah, I, I, I still think it definitely is. Um, mm. And then uh, I've realized that quite a, quite a lot of people have that as well, right? That's, mm-hmm. why, that's, one, that's why I yeah. want to ask about that, yeah. And, uh, definitely, yeah. It's, it's, it's something very common. It's very, very common. And the roots of it lead to something very deep and universal. Um, but, you know, I... When it comes to, to this imposter syndrome, two things that come up very commonly with clients, and I'll take you a bit off the coaching hot seat as well. <laughs> um, because my style of coaching also, you should know, it's, it's, it's kind of, I really like deep coaching. And what See. that means is like, it's very, it can get very intense and very mm-hmm. deep and personal and vulnerable as well. So yeah. it's, it's it, like, I don't want to just spring that on you totally. <laughs> no worries, um, no worries. But yeah. Perhaps another recording or something we could do like a live session. Or something. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of um, in terms of imposter syndrome, you said it yourself. The two keywords already in your first two sentences: worthiness and should. These are very deeply linked to each other. So let's let's kind of unpack them, right? Yeah. So I say the word should, like you say, it's a duty, right? Mm-hmm. The word should, I should do something. If you kind of ask yourself, you know, th- there's there's two kinds of desires, I think. There's the should and there's the want. I want this versus I should do this are different. Yeah. Right. Can you feel how they're different? Even when you say them, they're different. Like I should be on LinkedIn right now doing like whatever outreach or whatever. Versus I want to be on LinkedIn right now doing outreach and whatever. Yeah. It means they have a choice, right? It's a choice. What you want, if you if you notice, and this is for me personally, and I, I think it's the same for other people, what you want comes from here. What you should do comes from here. Now, the problem with what's in here and the shoulds that we have, right? It's not, I'm not saying that you should never do something because you should do it. You should only do what you feel like you want to do, right? Because sometimes we need discipline, sometimes we need things like that. But the danger, and this is really where the root of human confusion about life comes from, is that the shoulds that we have in our head are not our own. We inherit them from other people. Other people tell us you should do this. And then we're like, oh yes, this is what I should do. And a lot of the times this can happen in the first 10 years of our life. And those same shoulds that we heard back then that were very circumstance dependent, the shoulds that were actually, you know, uh, coming from, let's say for example, our parents, we carry them with us throughout our lives. And they're, they're so deeply embedded within our psychological structures that we don't even see them. And these are what I call core beliefs. Core beliefs, you know, if you think about the mind almost like a, like a, let's say like an engine, right? Or yeah, let's say like it's an engine. All the thoughts and everything that you produce that what you experience is like the output of like this engine, right? That, that's just kind of shooting off like all the time. Then there's like all this m- mechanical stuff that you don't really see this in your kind of subconscious and everything. And then right at the center, there's like this cog that is like a core belief. This might be belief, for example, um, that 
I am not worthy of receiving a gift that I did not earn. Like the scholarship thing, for example, right? Like I feel that as well. That would, that would be true for me as well. Like I am not like that's a, that's a belief or a belief is like that. I am not worthy of love unless I'm perfect. That is a huge one for a lot of people. That's, that's every perfectionist. That's what they actually believe deep yeah. down inside. Um, these cogs at the center of this big machine, right? They are actually working all the time driving these things and they are influencing everything that comes out every decision that you want to make every desire everything that you experience you feel that you think that you want the thing that you should do they play a part they touch all of that right they're we're sitting right in the middle and they're so deeply embedded that you don't even see them you don't even question them because they're like our fundamental axioms about life that are almost like behind what we can experience consciously. So the coaching process, for example, and this is also meditation or any, any kind of introspection. Coaching is basically guided introspection. It can poke you to like, instead of just following the shooting off of your thoughts to be like that thought, but where did that thought come from? Let me go and step inside, a step inside, a step inside. And eventually you realize what your core beliefs, you discover them for yourself. And it's a very powerful because you kind of realize like, oh fuck, this is what I actually believe about myself. And then you're like, do I want to believe what this? Like, is this really? Do I really feel like I'm deeply disunworthy? Like, you're kind of like, what's going on here? Something. Where did that come from? And then we start going into personal history, parents, these kinds of things, and you know, there there's something called conditions of worth in psychotherapy, and these are basically beliefs that we inherit from the world around us about what conditions we need to meet in order to be worthy, to be worthy of blessings, of love, of attention, of acceptance, of you know, things that we want from others, right? And the, 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 the tricky thing is like, we all pick up these conditions of worth because inevitably like our parents project their own conditions of worth onto us. So like the shoulds that they tell us are the shoulds that they have in their heads from when their parents told them, from when their parents told them. So it's like just a bunch of like shoulds being passed down that are not being examined properly, right? Like, and, and, and being chosen, like, do I want to keep this or do I want to throw it away? And so the whole process, you know, and this is a gradual process that happens over a few weeks. And, you know, I've kind of said it now, but it's really very different. Like, I would never say this in an actual coaching session. I would never say, yeah. like, just point it out and give you the answer because that's not the point. The point mm -hmm. is to go through that process of introspection and discovery. And you flex that muscle of introspection and discovery. And you also build the confidence and the evidence that you can do this on your own and you can discover yourself. And then you see there's this whole world inside you. And you, you like that spark of internal curiosity in someone. That's the thing that is actually going to make a difference in their lives. Um, and, you know, you, you slowly start to understand yourself better. You understand. I've personally been understanding how so much of my motivation for working hard comes from this belief about my worth. That, like, I'm only worthy if I'm useful. I'm only worthy if I'm productive. You know, and, I, and, I, and this is still in my heart. And it's still there every day. And it causes me a lot of anxiety and stress when there just doesn't need to be in my life. And it makes it very hard for me sometimes to forgive myself or to love myself because the conditions, like nobody tells you when you're growing up that like, yeah, you know, this, this, like, first of all, what everybody's looking for is love. Fundamental truth. Uh, like we can, you know, can go into depth about why that's the case or everything, but you almost everybody will find this when they start some sort of introspective process. Right. Uh, then the second realization is, People are not just looking for love from other people. What we actually want is love from ourselves. That's the best kind because that's the only kind that can be truly unconditional. 
because you're always going to have your own back. You're always going to be, you're always going to have your, your own best interests at heart, right? Learning to love yourself. There's a lot of kind of stuff to be said about that. And a lot of obstacles that come lead to that. Um, and then the next step after that is once you, first you realize we need love. I need love. I need love for myself, not from other people. Those obstacles I was just talking about are these conditions of worth. Because what we learn about, you know, other people, like our parents, for example, might show us a, like love when we do really well academically or in sports or whatever. But when we fail or like I get an F on a test, somebody's super angry, everything. I realize like, oh, the love, it goes away when I don't do this thing. So I need to do this thing to get the love, right? And love is, is not person specific. So, so in our minds, the way our minds process it, it's not like I need to do this to get specifically the love from my parents. We just think we, I need to do this to get love in general, including love for myself. So then you start, you, you, you don't have access to your own pool of self-love and most people don't because they're holding themselves back because they believe they're not worthy because of these, these things that they were told by other people. So the whole process of therapy, the whole process of spiritual growth is discerning within yourself what has come from other people what have other people told you about yourself versus what do you actually know about yourself from the inside and dropping all the bullshit and moving towards truth. Um, and once you can love yourself, then you can actually love other people. But one thing that I've really realized is you cannot love other people until you love yourself. You cannot love them in a true unconditional way. And that's exactly the reasons why our parents, um, you know, or most parents give all these like traumas or these scars or these, these chips on the shoulders to their children because they don't know how to love unconditionally because they don't love themselves unconditionally. Um, so like until you have that, cause, cause what does it mean to love somebody unconditionally, right? And this is the same kind of unconditional love that would be the foundation of that utopia that we were talking about before. Um, unconditional love means regardless of what the other person does, you love them, you empathize, you, you, you understand where they're coming from, you forgive them, you accept them as they are. This means in the most extreme case, it's, it's not just about loving somebody who is being loving to you. That's easy. It's easy to reciprocate when love is given to you. It's about giving love in a situation where somebody is either withdrawing love or is like harming you or is, you know, insulting you or, or is judging you. Like in the case of that, that, that martyr that might be judging, right? Um, to be able to love and accept despite that, you need to have, you need to have practiced forgiving yourself for when you hurt yourself. So it's almost perfect if you see in a way like we are, we are kind of suffering because we punish ourselves because of the judgments that we think we're supposed to be having about ourselves all the time. And then there's also all these kind of negative forces in the outside world of like judgment, of violence, of harm, of all these things. When we learn to become comfortable with that within ourselves, that which is outside us doesn't trigger us and, and throw us into like compulsive uh, action anymore. Because the only way that somebody else judging you, obviously it's different if somebody's shooting bullets at you, right? Like I'm not saying that, but if somebody else judging you or being mean to you or hostile or nasty uh, to you can actually make you nasty is if it triggers hurt or pain or nastiness within yourself. But if you have cleaned yourself of those wounds, those wounds, like, because when, when somebody's judging you, they're basically telling you you're not worthy, right? That's, you know, that's the subtitle, right? And then if you have that belief that that wound within yourself that you still have, that you actually on some level believe that you're not worthy, somebody says something that makes you, that either directly or indirectly is telling you you're not worthy, then you believe, oh, fuck, I'm not worthy. And then all the emotional avalanche of shame, 
of anger, of self-hatred, what all this kind of stuff that floods in when that is triggered, that's then floating around in your system. Are you going to be nice and forgiving to that person? Probably not. Like, you know, um, so yeah, this is the kind of the stages of like understanding love, I guess, that, at yeah. least this, my stages. Mm -hmm. Like, um, I don't think that that had anything to do with your question, man. I'm sorry. But <laughs> no, no, no I, I think it did. But well, I mean, when you have, when you have these conversations where you're trying to analyze and get to the bottom of it, you, you have to, you have to explore lots of different parts, right? And then see if they converge, if they diverge, if they continue on, maybe they'll come back, right? You never know. So yeah. um, it's very, it's very nonlinear. Yeah. But uh, yeah, all roads lead to love. Like this is what I've been finding so far. Mm -hmm. All roads lead to, to love, especially self-love. And so all roads really lead to the self. Mm -hmm. And that's why spirituality is really the foundation of this whole thing. I don't like using the word spirituality that much anymore because it's very vague. And like when you use it, a lot of times people don't know what you're talking about. So I'm still working on my language of like in terms for, for, for communicating to other people what I really mean in a succinct way. So what, but yeah. is, that a, is that a word, you, a different word you prefer? Or? I think introspection is probably the best word because that is the best umbrella term that covers everything. Meditation, <laughs> yoga, other spiritual practices. The goal is to introspect and to look within yourself yeah. and to see more clearly within yourself. Um, and yeah, and, and then therapy, life coaching, these more Western approaches are just interactive modes of facilitating introspection. That's really what they're doing. Um, so yeah, introspection is probably the best word, but it's not a very sexy word. I, I wanna try and find something that is like really grabs yeah. people's attention. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so I read a couple of your blogs and uh, you talked to, to you had a couple titled The First Time I Woke Up and it's basically about mm -hmm. um, the power of now and uh, what happened mm. uh, when I went through some, let's say, uh, some difficult uh, times in Boston. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. you wrote about uh, dancing with the devil, uh, embracing, um, embracing all the emotions and letting the conflict, I, I, like, yeah, embracing the conflict as well, then you can integrate it. Uh, I, I want yeah. to ask, so what, why did you start the blog? And uh, what, what do you think you've got out of it uh, yourself? Is it just introspection or other people as well? Yeah, I feel like I started the blog because this was stuff that I had been very passionate about for a few years, and I would talk to, like, everyone about it. I was people like a couple of people asked me like why don't you write about this why don't you do something about it? Why you, like crazy kind of content and so that kind of got me thinking like hmm why don't I try it I give it a go and I enjoyed it I enjoyed writing about it and I I enjoyed it it was it was it was very much helpful for me to clarify my thoughts it, it was it was a really great way of, of catharsis to write and put stuff out there um and yeah um there was like some engagement as well which was really cool to to see that um but yeah, I think the problem is like in kind of finding my voice in that, in that space, like finding what it is, like talking from a place of authenticity, I found quite difficult, especially about this topic, because it is so deeply personal and it transcends even the concept of personhood that like, it was a bit of like, like a, like mind bending, like trying to write this stuff. And especially because, and especially trying to keep it authentic. 
because it was very hard not to try and come from a place where I was like a lot of the stuff that I've written about, like, you know, even dancing with the devil and things like that, these recommendations like of, of how to kind of deal with a mind that is like constantly messing with you. Like if I need to read that blog post, like I still need it today. Like, and so there was this kind of feeling of imposter syndrome actually that crept <laughs> and it actually kind of stopped me. Like yeah. I, I stopped writing. Um, and I also had a YouTube channel or an Instagram page for a while where I was doing spiritual content. And again, the same kind of imposter syndrome came up. So I stopped that as well. Um, and maybe stopping it was, was not the, like, I, it's not like I'm done. I'm not done producing this kind of content and I want to resume the writing and, you know, podcasting and all these kinds of things. Um, but it just felt like it wasn't the right time for me to be doing it authentically. Like I felt like it was actually getting in the way a bit of my actual spiritual growth because I was building this kind of ego as this kind of almost spiritual teacher. And I could see that happening. Yeah. And I was like, no, this is not good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it took a bit of introspection, right? <laughs> Again, yeah, introspection. And then I, I felt like I was doing it for the wrong reasons as well. I was like trying to do it with like for instrumental reasons. Like, so for the, the, the kind of outcome of getting an audience, getting traction that I could eventually use to like do other stuff with, you know, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to let me actually enjoy the process of this. But I kind of needed to do that. I need to explore writing. I need to explore what it felt like to make YouTube videos, what it felt like to like run an Instagram page. What, and I've also recorded a couple of podcast episodes of my own. And of these things I've discovered, I like writing and I like podcasts, but the other stuff, not so much. So it was, it was all good lessons. Like, you know, yeah um that's great um so i know you said you don't like five-year plans so what's your what's your five-day plan let's say <laughs> <laughs> um yeah five-day plan uh <laughs> um yeah like right now I'm, I'm kind of off consulting work for for a few weeks probably working on the ebook um spending some time with with friends loved ones uh over the weekend like i've given more and more time for that um and yeah i'm just kind of trying to honestly at this point in my life like i this is the least hard i've been working ever i think and it's really weird uh because they feel so much pressure to like i should be doing more i should be doing more i should be doing more like i'm not worthy of this level of rest you know uh, and I also feel like it's unfair that other people might be stuck in jobs that where they don't get this kind of, which was me, literally me in the consulting job before. Now it's like, you know, obviously when I'm doing the consulting projects, take it seriously, there's hard work every day, but I fully decide my own hours so I can work productively when I want. Um, I, I can then also just decide like, oh, you know, after working for four weeks, I'm a bit tired. Like I don't want to work now for two, three weeks. And nobody can tell me no, nobody, I don't have to ask annual leave from anyone, anything like that. So it's kind of like when, when you're actually in this really weird place where you're suddenly have all this freedom, how do you treat yourself is the question. And I've now, it's, it's almost like multiple trials of trying to treat myself more and more kindly uh, and just see how far I can push this. And it's so funny to see, even though, you know, I can, I talk about all this stuff like self-love and all these things that I really deeply believe in and I, and I, and I understand it on a mental level and more and more on an experiential level, there's still so many roadblocks. It's, it's a constant process of learning um, where it's like new stuff will come up all the time where it's like, um, it feels weird or unnatural or uncomfortable to like, just give myself the day off. Like on Monday, I was like, oh, I'm gonna like write the ebook. I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna publish it in like this week. Like I'm gonna do it like, like, first of all, where did all these goals come from? Like, why? 
Why am I pushing myself? And then, then on Monday morning, I was just like, you know what? Like, it would just be so nice to have the day off. And my friend was like, why don't you just take the day off? Like, there's nothing actually stopping you. And I did. And it was so nice. And it was such a foreign feeling to actually be like, oh, like, I don't need to subject myself to like this kind of self-imposed slavery of like, go get your nose to the grindstone, get this stuff done. Because at the end of the day, if I don't work today, what does this mean? Like, it means that my ebook is going to get published a bit later than otherwise. Am I okay with that? Hell yeah, I'm okay with it. Like, I don't care. Like, so that's kind of what I'm probably in the five day, like, there will be more introspection about that, more meditation, things like that. But in terms of the long term, I, I can now I feel more comfortable talking about the long term because I feel like I've identified things that I know that I like and that I'm quite confident that I won't regret investing time into. So in the long term, you know, uh, let's say even in a, in, in a year's time or something, like what I would really like um, is I would like to be making more income, if not potentially all of my income from psychology, you know, from, from this kind of psychotherapy, spirituality related stuff. So that's life coaching, online products, speaking events, that would be amazing. Um, if I don't get to that 100% income mark, that's fine. Like, it's, it's okay. Like, I also kind of enjoy the other work that I do. And it's also important work still in, like, clean tech space and all that kind of stuff. Um, that would be cool. Um, and then, yeah, I want to I wanna go to India this summer um, and, and, and spend some time with some uh, spiritually experienced people and, and also reconnect with my roots, my heritage. And then in the, in the very long term, I, I think coaching, I, I'd love to write books about this because uh, I love writing. Um, I, I would love to just basically move towards being effectively like a public speaker, a public intellectual, like a kind of thought influence. I hate the word thought leader because I feel like it's a very arrogant word, but, um, you know, just kind of like a, like a, a person who makes their money by sharing their ideas. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. You don't um, want to be called a be guru. No. Um, no, I don't. But that's actually, that's, that's I don't know if you still have uh, some time, a couple of minutes, but um, this whole thing of, of like wanting to be a guru and stuff, it's, it's kind of like, I don't want to be called that because I know how much my ego wants that. Like, um, and that comes from, from a very kind of childish actually thing. Like when I was in school, I remember respecting my teachers a lot. Like, and I remember I wanted to be a teacher when I was younger. Um, and, and over time, as I reflected, I was like, why did I want to do that? And there was a genuine part, which was like, it's so magical to see somebody's internal world transform when you teach them something new. And that actually is like, I still do that with coaching, which is like so fulfilling and beautiful. Um, but I think of even more important stuff than like, you know, maths or geography or whatever, like, um, but then it was also like this coming from this place of like, I wanted to be, there was an element of it, like a, like a shadow of it, which was like, I wanted to be in this, in the, in the position of authority, or I wanted to be in the position of respect where like people look to me for like answers or something like, you know, that kind of wanting to be important, wanting to be valued, wanting to be like a leader, like these kinds of more kinds of, which is not necessarily bad. Right. Um, but then it's like, as I moved on from like teachers, then in university, I wanted to be a professor funding enough, um, which potentially was just another kind of reflection of, like it was, I asked myself, who do I respect the most? I want to be that person. That's basically the, the logic there, which is not a crazy heuristic to like understand what you want to do. Um, and then I discovered like spiritual gurus and I was like, wow, like, wow, I want to be like that. Um, but then, you know, 
the whole thing is like if you if you start out with a goal like i want to be like that person it really stands in the way of your own spiritual growth and accepting yourself as you are because that's really all it is that's really all they're doing it's just they're in full total acceptance of right now and it, they're not trying to like grow into like this or trying to amass a following or trying to be teachers or anything they're just it's something so different to like other goals it's like you literally learn you refine your conscious experience and you literally become like this bright light to other people and other people can sense it they can feel it the love the warmth that you shed upon them like and then things gravitate towards you things happen like and this is definitely this is not for my personal experience let me say it's like um but what i will say is that the more i've stepped towards this the more i've stepped towards love and acceptance of myself and other people life has kind of taken a bit of a magical turn where you know like the opportunities that i have now like because i feel like it's literally my reward for listening to my gut when everybody else was telling me don't quit the job don't do this don't do that i was like no i feel like i should like i, I want to do this like i feel it inside and then yeah now i'm just like working with like great clients better work life balance better pay now i'm like exploring all these things like it's just and it's almost like things it's more like things have come to me like the opportunities have come to me i've not gone out hunting for them um and this whole thing i don't know if you've heard the word manifestation yeah um there's a there's a lot of talk around this and like in social media stuff like i used to be extremely skeptical extremely atheist very kind of like no this is all bullshit but like i can't deny my experience man it really feels like this kind of stuff might be real so <laughs> yeah. um, um when i but like back in uh, lockdown in 2020 march to like uh like <laughs> basically January 2021 um mm. I I, I kind of had that whole journey where you start off extremely atheist uh where all mm. the spirituality stuff sounds like nonsense right and yeah, then yeah. until until um I I was stuck in isolation um because of travel coming from the UK to Malaysia and mm. I was there for um for uh, for quite a while I ended up being in there for three weeks in my, my room just alone obviously parents mm. family gave me food but I was really wondering what, what I was doing with myself um, what I was supposed to be up to and um, mm. that's when I that's when my friend and I another one from school uh, we started talking more about spirituality and uh, mm. manifestation right reading reading books on things like this uh, behavioral mm-hmm. change psychology and mm. um yeah it's it allowed me to be a lot more aware right mm. uh, anticipate uh, certain personal behaviors um mm-hmm. and it, it took a while but uh the but the, that's why that's why when just now in the uh, impromptu uh, demonstration uh, i said that it was almost like an, something in the past right impost syndrome because um uh, i had a uh, I had a f- reframing, um, which my my mom actually uh, told me mm. that I was making myself miserable. That um, I was self-inflicting it, right? And mm. uh, obviously, like it's not the same for everyone. Like many people have different uh, reasons, right? But that basically snapped me out of it, and I was, and mm. like from then on out, I. Uh, I haven't really felt like I had too many problems. I still, uh, mm. from time to time, kept a journal and some meditation. 
Uh, but it was mm-hmm. really a reframing of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then an acceptance. I think. So, yeah, um, it's, it's been great. Do you have anything else you want to highlight or um, talk about? No, I, that's, that's a beautiful little journey, man. Like, I, I appreciate you sharing that as well. That's really nice to hear. It's so crazy how literally just reframing things in our heads can make such a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's the word for it, reframing. Yeah. instead of introspection I don't Intr- know. maybe it could be like introspective reframing <laughs> introspective reframing <laughs> <laughs> you'll figure something out um so I'll figure it out. Uh, Jit, where where can people find your work or reach out to you yeah so at the moment um mainly i guess linkedin or, or instagram but over the next few weeks and months like my social media kind of presence is gonna change so i think the best thing is i send you over like a link tree link Okay. Um, which will just update like wh- wh- whenever I, I kind of add stuff to that and people can just find my stuff on there. So uh, in terms of stuff that I've made so far, you know, there's like a handful of YouTube videos, um, which are just kind of experiments. The, the blog posts, which I have not posted in a while, but I have a few draft ones that I'm going to be posting soon. That's kind of stuff like musings on, on the spirituality of the world, like kind of stuff we'll be talking about in this podcast. Um, and then, also, I'm, I'm, I'm working on uh, a kind of uh, slowly, just kind of when I have some free time, recording some sessions uh, with, with people I know uh, for my own podcast, which is, is yet to be named and, and released and stuff. But that's something else that should be popping up. Um, and yeah, finally, I guess, uh, you know, if anybody uh, found these kinds of things interesting, they want to have a chat just in general, feel free to like message me, LinkedIn, Instagram. Um, or, uh, you know, if you're interested in like receiving any kind of coaching or having like a kind of introductory call uh, to see, um, you know, what it would look like and like to have a little taster or feel, more than happy to do that as well. And finally, yeah, I don't know when it is that I'm going to publish this, uh, this ebook, but that'll also be on the link tree. So it will basically be a kind of um, what, what it's shaping up to be is really this kind of guide that walks you through taking you from like the common problems that you might be experiencing right now on a, on a surface level, you know, symptoms like anxiety, stress, imposter syndrome, like a lot of like mental pressure, um, anxiety about the future, not knowing how to plan your career, all these kinds of things that, you know, young people are grappling with. Um, and then kind of walking you through how all of that can be reframed as a kind of internal issue that it, it then becomes a much simpler problem rather than trying to fix all these seven different problems. It's actually all in the core, just one thing which is all about this introspective reframing and then walking you through like really key profoundly like that for me have been profoundly life-changing like kind of uh conceptual frameworks to look at yourself that i've learned from like psychotherapy and spirituality and also some applied exercises to like make you introspect and realize certain things and then also some practices as well and like guidelines so it's basically like an instruction little manual booklet of like how to start pulling yourself out of whatever hole you might be stuck in and moving towards a better experience of life. That's, that's amazing, man. Uh, I look forward to seeing it. Uh, thank you very much Jim, yeah. for your time. It's been, it's been great. Well, it's been super nice uh, talking to you. Uh, I really enjoyed this podcast. I think you asked some really great questions. And um, yeah, I think uh, likewise, I'll be tuning in to, to your episodes to understand more about the tech and business world through the eyes of, you know, VC people, PhD people, like this is, it's very cool to get uh, an insight into these conversations that, you know, unless, you know, until, unless you're kind of a fly on the wall in the right place, like you won't really hear them. So it's really great that you're kind of creating this platform to kind of 
put these ideas out there. Thank you very much, Chip.